Bertolt Brecht was a German playwright and stage director in the first half of the 20th century, who is remembered by most people today for giving us the jazz standard Mac the Knife, when he is remembered at all. But folks with even a passing interest in theater know that his influence on all forms of popular storytelling cannot be overstated. He was the leading pioneer of what he initially called epic theater, which doesn't carry the same connotations that we think of today. He meant epic more in a sense of the audience experience and the impact of the performance rather than in the scope of the storytelling. One of the focuses of the experience he was trying to create was the so-called distancing effect holding the audience at arm's length and depriving them of their willing suspension of disbelief rather than immersing them in an escapist reality, whether or not that escapist reality contained a larger message. When we talk about today's film, the word epic quickly enters the conversation, but we don't usually mean it in the Brechtian sense. In fact, immersive world building and overly detailed practical sets are kind of Ridley Scott's bread and butter. Regardless of the substance, the man puts on one hell of a show. So why, upon this rewatch, was I thinking, of all things, about the often stripped-down, anti-immersive philosophies of Bertolt Brecht? One word. Historicization. See, techniques used to achieve the distancing effect can be as simple as stagehands going about their business in plain view of the audience. But one of Brecht's most successful methods in achieving the effect is historicization, setting a story in a different time period to comment on current events. Not an allegory, that demands a one-to-one -one ratio, and more often than not, a poor imagination. Historicization is different. Remember how MASH took place in the Korean War but was really about Vietnam and everybody knew it? That's the kind of shit I'm talking about. And Brecht did the same thing in his play Mother Courage and Her Children, which was set during the Thirty Years' War, but was written in response to the rise of fascism in Europe, particularly the Nazis in Germany. So when our boy Ridley began production on an action drama set during the Crusades, as a commentary on the American conflict in the Middle East, he may or may not have been conscious of borrowing a page from Bertolt Brecht's playbook. Now, the risk of historicization as satire, or even as commentary, is that sometimes people forget the context. Today's film is, today, usually regarded only on its surface level, which is a real shame because this movie had a lot to say when it was released in 2005. A mere four years after 9-11, and two years after we declared mission accomplished in a war that would last almost another two decades, Ridley Scott took this film as an opportunity to present us with a vow, to view each other as human beings, and a slap on the face so that we would remember it. It was a message that wasn't much appreciated at the time, and in 2021, it's almost entirely forgotten. Does this often overlooked Swords and Sandals popcorn chomper stand on its own so far removed from the context of the time in which it was made? Or does it rise and or fall depending on which version of the director's vision you happen to see? War is hell. People make films about it. And we love to talk about them. So go to where the men speak Italian and continue on until they speak something else with a former Marine, a film critic, and a theater director as we discuss multiple cuts of Ridley Scott's 2005 accidentally Brechtian epic tale of war for conquest of the Holy Land, Kingdom of Heaven. Call it in. It's danger close.
Welcome to Danger Close, a war film podcast. Today, we are going to talk about Ridley Scott's 2005 epic film, Kingdom of Heaven, set in the late 12th century in between a couple of crusades, but during that period in the Levant. My name is Dan, and I'm here today with my partners, Katie and Liam. And Katie is here with her mission briefing. Ridley Scott aimed to create a masterpiece in the style of Cecil B. DeMille. From the impressive scope of building a giant set of the city of Jerusalem to the original three-hour running time, those grand classics obviously had their influence on this. With a budget of $130 million, Kingdom of Heaven's cut-down theatrical release had a lackluster reception with only $20 million at the box office opening weekend. And while it did eventually regain its money, mostly on the international run, it was always considered a disappointment by studios, general audiences, and critics alike. The film tells the story of Balian, a French blacksmith in the 12th century, raised from his status as a bastard by his long-lost father Godfrey. After losing his wife and child in a suicide and murdering a priest, Balian follows his father's directions to go to the Holy Land and earn his redemption as a crusader. Once there, Balian is caught up in a web of deceit, politics, sex, and warring faiths. He does his best according to his own moral code and achieves some kind of happiness, but eventually finds himself in charge of the final siege of Jerusalem against Salahaddin. The studio mandated Scott trim his original version by 45 minutes, and the film suffered terribly. It takes out key plot points and makes the story and performances feel confusing and lifeless. Critics found it dull, and even Scott's signature gorgeous style couldn't save it from bad reviews. Much of the criticism was aimed at what they say was a clear political message that was anachronistic to the times and more a reflection of the American war in Afghanistan and Iraq after 9-11. The rest was aimed toward the lack of development for the characters and Bloom's staid performance. Fully aware of how badly it had botched the initial release, the studio opted to put out Scott's full cut on DVD just over a year later, and unfortunately it did not get nearly the critical coverage that the theatrical release did. The big players in criticism paid little attention, but a few small outlets braved the longer running time and universally praised it over the theatrical cut, saying it felt less frenetic and the story made more sense than in the original. Now, I hadn't seen the film at all, but because I'm a responsible film critic and want to do my best for all you listeners out there in moderating this upcoming debate, I watched both the films over the weekend and I certainly found which one I preferred. But before I get to that, Dan, Liam, have you two seen both of these versions and which one do you prefer? So I did not rewatch the theatrical for this sitting, but I have seen it before. I definitely didn't figure this out on my own. I think I saw the theatrical of this first years ago and was kind of unimpressed. I was like, okay, it's gorgeous. And I can see all the effort and work that was put in to the costume design, to the production design, the weapons, etc. And I'm no weapons expert, so I'm not as good as um, some of our contributors at calling out, you know, historical inaccuracies, etc. But just the look of the film and the scope of it was very grand. And it does have that Ridley Scott production style where even in some of his duds where characters are poorly written or the plot is confusing or whatever the case may be, but still you hear interviews with the actors and they're like, yeah, it felt like we were there. You could touch everything. Everything was real. So whether it's spaceships or um, old forts, castles, whatever it is. Ridley Scott puts a lot of effort into his production design. 
I think part of the philosophy, I mean, he's an artist and, you know, does all those beautiful sketches. He often storyboards his own films. But I think part of it is that he really believes in giving the actors as much as he can physically so that they can focus on acting and not have to imagine a bunch of stuff on green screen. And I really appreciate his take on production design. And I imagine most actors really like that because it makes their job to a certain extent easier. Yeah, so I rewatched the very long three-hour director's cut of this. And, you know, Ridley Scott, especially for me, has this very, very famous relationship with different cuts that comes from Blade Runner, which is all the way in 1982. And he's done it with other things. Again, I've mentioned before that The Counselor is a much better film in the director's cut versus the theatrical. So it's, it's really common. I don't know why at any point past Gladiator, Ridley Scott still has to fight any producer to get his way on what he wants to put in a final film and how he wants it edited because you would think that they would trust his judgment at this point, considering all the films that he has either made really well the first time or once he got to recut it the way he wanted to, they're usually superior to the other version. You know, people differ on that, but generally speaking, that's the consensus. So I was surprised that in 2003, four, when they were producing this, that he was, that he would have to fight for it for the right to do that. So it's pretty interesting. And I know we'll talk about it a lot. Once you read about and kind of cover the differences between the two cuts, you can sort of see where the characters fall flat without scenes that were removed. And while I'm not happy with the length of the film for, for as epic a scope as it has, these three hours feel very long. And I feel like a lot of the battle scenes and certain things can be cut down. But I definitely disagree with what the editors decided to cut out of the film. And I know we're going to unpack a lot of that in this episode, so I'll stop there. But that's that was kind of my first impression the first time. And this viewing just cemented that for me again. Liam? So uh, first thing I want to touch on, Dan, is something that you said. And, it's, and I agree, it's surprising that Ridley Scott does not have final cut on his movies at at that stage in his career mm-hmm. um with the amount of success that he's had but if you if you haven't anybody who likes movies just in general should read uh Sidney Lamette's book on making movies it's a fantastic read first of all but one of the things he talks about is how difficult it is to get final cut added into a director's contract and once you have it you hang on to that shit like it's gold Um, and you never let anybody talk you out of it. Like there was a story that he told about, um, a writer who he was like adapting the book to the big screen and the writer wanted final cut or wanted to share final cut with him. And he said, no. And the guy got really mad until he explained to him like the whole career trajectory that you have to go through to get final cut authorization. Uh, and, and then the guy like back, he's like, I'm not going to make a movie that you don't like of your book, but I I can't give you, I can't give up my final cut uh, because once you give it up, you you're not getting it back. So yeah, it is weird that Ridley Scott does not have that, uh, especially with how many times his movies have come out with different versions after the fact. I, I 100% agree there. I saw this movie in the theater multiple times hmm. because I fucking loved it. <laughs> I thought it was I thought it was fantastic. And part of that might be the fact that I for one and I might be the only one 
but I'm fine with that too. I'll go it alone. <laughs> I was not impressed with Gladiator. I thought that movie was pretty piss poor. And especially as far as like best picture winner goes, I I'm, I'm still not sold on Gladiator. I don't like Russell Crowe winning best actor for it. And I don't like that movie winning best picture. It, it struck me at the time. And I think I was in like, I think I was a senior in high school when that came out. I remember even at the time being like this entire premise seems preposterous to me. And uh, just like as, as far as a, a plot being far fetched to the point that it, it goes beyond the, the bounds of my, my willing suspension of disbelief. It, it just could not, it, it could not get me on board. So when I went to see this one, I was really impressed with how much better this movie is than gladiator, even in the theater, like the theatrical cut of this, I will take the Pepsi challenge of the theatrical cut of kingdom of heaven against whatever cut of gladiator that Ridley Scott decides to present before me. Cause he's going to do that. at my request, obviously, right? Private screening. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Privacy at Ridley, have me over, show me whatever version of gladiator you think is worthy. Smoke cigars, fill the room with blue smoke. Oh my God. You know, it's, <laughs> Was the the archer line stop? My penis can only get so erect. <laughs> um, but yeah, I really liked it, and I, I'm just such a big fan of this movie right from the jump. And I've been burned by director's cuts in the past, uh, most notably with the first director's cut of Last of the Mohicans, which mm -hmm. is verifiably much worse than the theatrical release agree with you there and is 99% made up for by the blu-ray release, which is the definitive director's cut is what it, what it says. Um, disagree, but we'll talk about that in that episode. I, th so that's, I'm the Liam on that film, the theatrical cut to me, the theatrical cut is fantastic. Was something Michael Mann should have never touched, but I was going to bring up Michael Mann anyways, because in terms of getting final cut, he has some kind of ultimate rights over final cut where like every 10 years he can just go back. I don't know where he gets the money, but he could just go back and recut his shit for two minutes of extra dialogue. And he has that right. So he's like a good example of someone who got it and is never letting go of it. <laughs> So I don't like, yeah, we'll talk about last of the Mohicans when the time comes, but, uh, I've, I've, I've learned to be suspect of director's cuts. And I think if you look at some things like the stuff that's coming out on Netflix these days from big name directors that you're like, oh, you probably need like the nun's hand of the studio wrapping you across the knuckles with a ruler, uh, to get you to like, stop, like the Irishman. Oh God. Just really like, and, and that's what Netflix does is they lure these big name, famous directors in by saying, Hey, you're not going to get a no from us. And then they don't give them the no when they really need the no. And then you get like this four hour movie, <laughs> right. of, like a CGI Robert De Niro. Like what the fuck are you doing? Netflix. But back to the movie we're actually talking about. So I saw then the director's cut of this after I'd already watched the theatrical version, probably 10 times, not in the theater, but like on DVD and things like that after the fact. And I'm not going to say that this director's cut did me dirty. There's a lot of good stuff in the director's cut, but for me, 
the stuff that it fucks up almost ruins some of my favorite parts of the theatrical cut. And it's a, it's a balancing act that I'm still trying to figure out as to whether the stuff that I like is worth the stuff that I hate. Because the stuff that I hate, I hate a whole bunch. Interesting. Very. That's, I'm very intrigued to see what you liked and didn't like. Because my first reaction watching this, like I watched the first one on Friday and the second one on Sunday to give myself a day in between to just kind of decompress. Otherwise, I feel like I would have just glazed over because five and a half hours is a long time to watch the same movie. Right. Um, And the first one, I kind of immediately disliked. Like, I just, from the first 10, 15 minutes, I was like, what are we doing here? This doesn't make any sense. Like, why? Why? And by the end, it just kind of felt like it had been stumbling through all of these different plot points and not giving anything room to breathe. And certain characters felt totally unnecessary and certain characters I really wanted more of. Um, And then I watched the second one and my loving husband sat down to watch it with me, even though he'd already seen it again the first time. What a trooper. (laughs) He he was, he was. And uh my wife did not. She tried to watch the director's cut with me and fell asleep. Oh. By the like she hung in until like the last 20 minutes and then she started to fail. Oh, but, dang. Well. Of course, to her in her defense, I did watch this movie 3 times because the Blu-ray I have has the theatrical cut, the director's cut, and the director's uh roadshow edition which if, if I'll touch on that later but i watched this movie i watched like nine ten hours of this movie wow and so he was even more critical of it than i was and we were both like okay this makes so much more sense within the first 15 minutes of film because by the end i just thought who was i supposed to like here none of these people are likable none of these people i don't feel motivated to want to see any of them succeed or fail i'm just like meh there was nothing drove me in the film. And then when I watched the director's cut, I was, everything felt more sensible. I still, I'll hold off how exactly I felt about it till conclusions, but it made more sense, which was a big, important thing for me, especially when you are doing a three hour epic. Like I, and I love three hour epics. I grew up watching the 10 commandments at least once or twice a year, Cleopatra, Ben-Hur, all that stuff. So, yeah, it, I had a very mixed reaction between the two of them, and I'm really excited to pick into the differences and talk about what Scott was trying to say, because there's a lot going on there, and that what I found was the most interesting part of all of it for me. So this film, as it tells you at the beginning, takes place mostly in 1184. And we're in the timeline of the 11th and 12th centuries. We are in between the second and third crusade here. So like the film says, about a hundred years after the end of the first crusade, which was 1096 to 1099. So this was after the Turks had taken Jerusalem in the year 1000, a hundred years later or so was the first retaking of Jerusalem by Christian forces of course, during which, and every time this is happening, it's not just Jerusalem, it's surrounding areas, there's lots of, you know, killing and mayhem going on. And one thing that I'm sure we'll touch on a lot is just how much 
without getting into politics, but just the region, it makes you think so much of the current Israel-Palestine conflict and, you know, Sykes-Pico agreement from uh, after World War One, how the Middle East was split up. It's like all these things are sort of in the back of my mind as I'm watching this because you can see the history reaching all the way till now. We get to then the Second Crusade, 1147 to 1149, and then we start to get into the time period from this film in the late 12th century, where it starts by showing us an extremely filtered and bleak kind of blue grayish version of Europe at the time. Right. And it's cold France. It is. <laughs> Although <laughs> everybody almost speaks with an English accent. <laughs> I was like filmed in Spain. British accents. Oh. Supposed to be France. <laughs> you can t- you can tell it's got more of a windswept look to it than I usually expect France to have. Mm-hmm. Um being the breadbasket of Europe. Well it's winter. But <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so the film starts out with where things deviate between the two versions. We'll go into detail. And this first scene, very different. (laughs) One thing they did in the film that I think is done to sort of highlight the somber mood. And of course, the fact that the film starts with a burial, but this, I, I brought it up because this overly filtered sort of blue grayish, gloomy, cold, depressing version of Europe to then later contrast with their arrival on the shores of the Mediterranean into the Middle East, where everything is like bright and yellow. The color palette's just completely changed, and it's very kind of obvious hand of the director stuff. But interestingly, in real life, Europe and the Middle East were at kind of similar levels of development and civilization. The contrast they're trying to show you would be much more realistic between the early 11th century in the middle in Europe and then in the Middle East versus where they were a hundred years later. Europe is depicted as overly primitive in this particular time period. I could see that because it's it's very like it's fucking bleak. Yeah. In his hometown. Everybody looks very cold all the time. There's like a, a lady banging a cat against the wall in the background. and <laughs> You're confusing this with Monty Python. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Did I watch the right director's cut? I don't think so. Okay. This is just the very beginning of, you know, in a story that kind of spans a period that's over, you know, or almost a thousand years ago. or And we're talking about a hundred year difference. To us, it's like not that big a difference. The anachronism doesn't stick out that much. As what we'll see this as a theme throughout with weapons and armor and chainmail and tactics and those kinds of things that, you know, they take liberties 50 years, 100 years plus or minus here and there, which honestly, I don't know. I'm not that much of a stickler for that kind of thing. I'm, I'm not going to get pedantic about a thousand years ago, which sword was correct and not. It's like, as long right. as you're not making atrocious missteps, like, you know, it's like if you're talking about William Wallace's men wearing kilts like 300 years or 400 years too early in Braveheart. Like that's one thing I'm like, man, that's pretty solid anachronism. Whereas this they're fudging like 50 to a hundred years sometimes, but also it's mixed in and a lot of the things they're showing are accurate. So I'll kind of give them a pass on that. But I just wanted to mention that the mood is very much set with those starkly different filters at the beginning. Whenever they're in France, it's like that. It's Mm -hmm. slightly better at the very end. But yeah, the beginning, it's it's just all blue, all shades of blue, which was also a very popular technique during that time period. Like right. filters, they apparently had just discovered filters and right. they were like, we're going to use them for everything. And it's not a good choice. 
Well, this was around the time that they were they were fucking around with uh, shooting on digital rather than film for the first time. So they were yeah. doing all kinds of weird shit that you like nobody wants now, but at the time it was like, oh man, that's really cool how you did that. Right. Yeah. You didn't even have to and use different. film for that. You know, it's like Technicolor back in the fifties. Yeah. Um, it's like, like Wes Anderson gets like bleached out looks by actually giving his film negatives an acid bath. And like, that's a real good way to fuck up your film if you don't do it right. So people were really into all of these things that you could do with your movie without having to put your original film at risk around this time period. So the film starts out with the burial of Balian's dead wife, who we never gets a name, which is weird, creepy to me. But we see, and this is where it diverges immediately, because um, there's just a bit more dialogue between the priest who is burying, who is overseeing the burial by two hired hands, I guess. And he strips off her cross and tells him to cut off her head and bury her at the crossroads. Because she was a suicide. Exactly. Which at the time very much tainted him as well, Balian as well. So... And then we see Liam Neeson's character come in, the Crusader. And from there, the two versions really radically differ because there's so much more information given about Liam Neeson and his relationship with all of the people in this town. Because the first one very much portrays it as he is there just by happenstance. And in the director's cut, we find out that that's his hometown. And the guy who runs that town is his brother. And that the priest is Balian's brother. So it just gives all of this more depth. And I liked that part of it because... We also get a uh, an additional Jamie Lannister in there. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's right. That's right. Ni- Nikolai Coster- where, 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 Coster Waldo. Where's Waldo? I thought Liam was really going to nail that one right off the bat. I was like, wow, I'm so impressed. Nikolai Kostorwawa. <laughs> So, I mean, for me, that part really worked when you got more information, because, you know, when we think about going to the Crusades now, we think about it as being this noble, well, depending entirely on who you are and where your sympathies or religious religion lies. Um, if you are a Christian and you are going, it is often given a kind of glossy sheen of you are going for God and you have a holy mission and that was just not accurate for the vast majority of the people who were going. I mean, there, it was for certain folks, but for a lot of everyday people, it was a chance at a new life. It was a chance to get out of serfdom and or being like in this instance, the youngest brother. So I like that this version gives us way more information just with these. It's what, like 10 minutes of scenes mm-hmm. and really develops that. I mean... Where did you guys come down on that? Well, I was going to ask Liam, if we consider a little bit more than just this scene, and let's call this the part of Balian's arc that takes him to Jerusalem, or that he decides to embark on his journey from here, right? I'd like to start round one of this fight with Liam. Round one, fight! Where were you at on understanding Balian's character and motivations by the time he is catching up with Godfrey and saying, uh, I murdered someone, I decided to leave it all behind, I'm going to go with you, can I find redemption for me and my wife? Where were you at throughout, and I'm talking about whatever you like, but throughout that part of the arc, how did you feel about his motivations? So it's this is one of those things where it's like I like one thing and I hate the other um, because I 
don't necessarily like the additional fleshing out of Liam Neeson's character in the director's cut. I don't like what it did to Liam Neeson's arc, but I do like what it does to Orlando Bloom's arc. Okay. So like when you see Orlando Bloom in the director's cut, he's in jail for being possessed of the devil and crazy because his wife is dead because his wife committed suicide. Yeah. Because his wife committed suicide. So he's in prison for that maybe, or how he behaved after the fact. But the other thing that I think is more essential to this, to Balian's arc, the, in the director's cut is we get a, a better sense, not so much of like his trajectory, but his background where he has been to battle before. And he was an engineer in like skirmishes between different Lords. So that when he goes to Jerusalem and later is like, Oh, well let's, uh, let's take a look at this engineering thing. And we're going to do this trick and we're going to build these trebuchets that will hit them at these points and things like that. That's like, why does the blacksmith know how to do that? And like, why is he so good at fighting after one lesson? Like that's, I think that is fleshed out much better in the director's cut things that Michael Sheen's character is saying to the crusaders to try to get them to take Balian with him. He's like, Oh, he can build these machines that'll like hit a a flea off a pig's ass from 10,000 yards. Like, you know, that kind of stuff, you know, and he's, and then he has uh, a conversation that doesn't make it into the theatrical with uh, the BSG, the big sexy German Mm -hmm. about like, you know, how he'd been to war before with different Lords, he'd been in the cavalry or he'd been, he'd fought on a Mount. So these are all things that make the rest of his abilities in the movie make a whole lot more sense. Like they set those things up and then knock those pins down later. Uh, whereas in the theatrical cut, it's just kind of like, ah, he's good at this stuff now. Don't worry about it. We'll move on. Right. And we're good now. Let's go. Exactly. Uh, he must be really clever. The, but with Liam Neeson's character. So a couple of weird things, there's that weird flashback that he has with the, with Balian's mother, where they're like, prancing about in the flowers or whatever and which i appreciated to be i clear. did not <laughs> why because it it like that does not look like it, so they either needed to flesh that out way more or leave it the way it was because that is nothing that he would need to go back and apologize for and he's racked with guilt so he has to come back in the off chance that he has a son secondly they cut out the line that's in the theatrical cut where he says, I'm your father. No, I am your father. Which is weird because it's very clear in the theatrical cut. He's like, Hey, I had sex with your mother. She didn't really want to, I didn't force her, but I pursued her in my fashion in the director's cut. He also, they have the added dialogue of, to be polite, I should say, or to be courteous, I should say it was against her objections, but I was the Lord's brother and she didn't have a say. That flashback looked like that woman had a say and she was on board. Here's the thing is I watched that scene very carefully because I spent the entire first watching thinking that Liam Neeson was a rapist. Which <laughs> was- absolutely was probably true. But if you... <laughs> like- the the wording is so poor. And the reason, okay, before I get to that, the reason he comes back and apologizes is because that kid grew up as a bastard, which 
in the 12th century in France would be a really, really shitty life. And right. if he had abandoned his mother like that, that would have meant she would have suffered for it. Like, he screwed him over by just leaving him there and not marrying his mother. Except in the director's cut, from the conversation that they have with the Lord, he's considered the son of the blacksmith. I'm with you there. And he was apparently named after the blacksmith because when he says, when he introduces himself, he says, I knew your namesake. Then he says, I knew your mother. Like, I knew your mother. That's like right. I was, con- thank you. That clarifies something. So, so it, that's why, like, Liam Neeson's backstory gets a lot muddier. Whereas if he coerced Balian's mother to have sex with him, raped his mother, and then she had this boy. And then he heard about it once he had left or whatever. Maybe he just left once he already knew about it. But he's racked with guilt 20 years later and comes back to seek forgiveness. That's an arc that makes sense to me and is clear. Right. And their relationship is then perfectly clear. My problem, and this is something that's going to come up a lot with the director's cut, is that sometimes it muddies the water, sometimes it makes things clear, but almost all of the things that they add back in are seeming justifications for shitty behavior. They're like, well, there's a little bit like, it's like, yeah, shouldn't have done that. But here's this thing that will probably tell you why that was throughout the theatrical cut. I usually don't need those justifications. I am fine with not that I'm fine with anybody being raped by anybody, but in the context of a medieval movie about an, about a knight who goes off to crusade, I'm sure that there were plenty of good knights that raped a lot of peasant women. Oh yeah. It wasn't, it wasn't even looked at the same way. Yeah. It wasn't looked at the same way. So I'm like, that's probably more accurate first of all. And secondly, like now is he the blacksmith's son? Like, did he just go back and like claim a son and be like, you're my son now because I loved your mother. And I'm going to take you with me and you're going to have my name like, but it's really confusing to me in, in that respect. Um, but to your other point, Katie, uh, one of the things that I liked about the theatrical cut is when they cut all of that stuff out about Liam Neeson's backstory and his being the brother of the Lord, there's a line where he says, where David Thewlis, the hospitaler says to him, do you know this place, my Lord? And he says, know it. I know all of it, which gives the sense in a concise brief, like brevity is the soul of wit kind of thing. To me, that's, that was better filmmaking where it's just, you have one line that says, yes, I know all of it. And he's looking around sort of wistfully. And you can tell from that, that like, maybe it's not his hometown, but dude spent like a lot of time here. You know what I mean? That's that's a kind of line that I think is really good and doesn't need further explanation. But I like all the stuff with the priest being Balian's brother. Michael Sheen's, it, like it gives Balian's murdering of Michael Sheen. So much more context. Well, first of all, like Michael Sheen is a shitty priest. Like he's mm-hmm. not just mean to Balian, oh, yeah. but like he's like stealing money hit left mm-hmm. and right. And like he's palming things. Yeah, and, he's like, pretty immoral. Stuff. Yeah, he's a shitty priest. Uh, and it's like, okay, so that makes more sense, but then a lot of other waters get a lot more muddied. So what's the trade-off here? 
interesting to go with. Yeah, I think if you were to split the character adjustments between Godfrey and Balian, I think we're on we're on the same page about Balian because that's what I was most curious about. I'm like, is Liam really going to defend not explaining at all sort of the gravity and depth of like the mental anguish and the place where Balian is at when he finally murders the priest? Because the idea I think that is that is sort of expounded upon in the director's cut is that Balian is a relatively non-violent person. He doesn't resolve conflict with violence unless he absolutely has to. And I think that, you know, the whole conversation with the bishop is not in the theatrical. And that made a lot of sense because at first I didn't understand. I was like, why is he insisting they cut her head off? Like, okay, he's a dick, but if he's not making money for it, I don't understand the motivation. And then when he has the conversation with the bishop, I understood that they were just trying to highlight his nature where the law at the time was that suicides got their heads cut off, but the church did not condone it or endorse it. And so the bishop was like, you didn't mutilate her body, did you? And he's like, no, and he lies and says no. And he goes, okay, good. Um, And so it shows that he insisted her head be cut off, even though he had plenty, he would have had plenty of backing to not have that happen. So it's showing you not only that he's a shitty priest, but that he's going out of his way to be as shitty to his brother and and the memory of his wife yeah. as he possibly can. But he's vindictive. Well, and also in that conversation, we also learn that the bishop needs Balian's engineering know-how to build his church. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, like, he's established as being a valuable brain to the society. And his brother's trying to get him the hell out of there. He's trying in every way he can to get him. And maybe that's what he was trying to do is provoke not his own death, but maybe an act of violence that he could be like, ha ha, you know, you got to get out of here now. You're going to get in trouble. Of course, he didn't realize that he was going to kill him. Dead in a ditch on fire. Which is kind of a, you know, normally is is beyond what his character would. And I got to say, Michael Sheen is perfect in this role. He plays such a good weasel. I love it. I was like... Oh my God, Michael Sheen. I just wanted to clap just for him. He's he's good. Before I uh, pass the ball to Katie, I wanted, I wanted to hit back on a couple of Liam's points. I think I'm a fan of ambiguity, generally speaking. If there's, if there's a something to be a little more malleable or faded versus something concrete, oftentimes I prefer ambiguity. And I think based on what I know about Ridley Scott and his previous work, Generally, I think he's a fan of ambiguity, too. I think he likes to chip things away and leave things more unsaid and let the audience figure it out in certain instances. So that's why it, that it didn't bother me that Godfrey didn't directly say, you are my son in this version. I was okay with it because it's heavily implied here. For me, he didn't need to say it. And I think there's almost a Star Wars moment there where he says, I knew your namesake except that you don't know that unless you look into the history and the trivia because Godfrey's original name was Balin the Elder. So mm. there was a much more direct connection between their names. And had they used his original name of the real historical character, because Godfrey is made up, you wouldn't even have to say anything. It was all of a sudden, it's like, oh, Liam Sr. is returning to town. And I meant Liam Masick. Like, it's very <laughs> right. clear that it's his father. But the producers forced a change because they didn't want more than one character named Bailey. They thought it'd be confusing for the audience. And so that's where the name Godfrey came from. So that was like a total producer's decision. Whereas I think all of this would have been way more clear in the original naming. 
And the last part that I didn't see addressed in the historical research, thank you, by the way, to uh, Alistair Pitts, uh, our friend Dave, and Ben Curley. They all three of them put in a ton of research on this. And I apologize in advance for all the stuff that I don't get to, but it was a lot. And I really appreciate it. Dave, if you think I'm going to break down like 15 different types of long swords and which ones were appropriate for this film, you're tripping. But I think you knew that. So <laughs> thank you anyways for doing all the research. And they all they all contributed in different ways. So I'm certainly going to mention different things that they said. But one thing I noticed is something that I saw in Braveheart, which was the myth of Prima Nocta, right? Where they have the wedding and then the Lord of the town shows up and he's like, well, I get to sleep with your new wife for the, cause I'm the Lord and that is my right. And that is like a completely bullshit made up thing that is nowhere in history, uh, famously in Braveheart. And so I didn't understand whether they were doing the same thing here. So what about being the Lord's brother gave him rights over this woman? Or is he just saying, I raped her, but it, I didn't suffer any punishment because I was the Lord's brother. I didn't understand the connection. I there. think what he was saying was that it's like, I think it's a power dynamic thing. It's kind of like the, if yeah. you're, if you, if you have sex with your boss, there's a very blurry line over whether that was a boss exerting undue control over your life station versus you know, you wanting to have sex with your boss, you know what I mean? It's kind of like that, but in a, a feudal system, and I don't know how feudal France was in 1184. Very. Hella. Very. <laughs> the, the, you know, the, there was a, a, basically the, the peasants worked for the nobles who in turn through noblesse oblige took care of the peasants. Yes. And protected them. And if an army came marauding by, their soldiers would defend the peasants and the peasants would be able to move into the castle walls and think like things like that. So I think the the nobility over the locals, they I think they wielded a, a great amount of influence and could either make life really good or make life really shitty. So like a, a softer and more realistic version of Prima Nocta, meaning that it's not some made up myth. It's more like a dynamic that happened. No, the, what we're talking about here is more that um, more plays into the idea of women as property, because that is very much the perspective that was at this time. Women were property to be sold. And Thank God we're over that. <laughs> yeah, right. Whew. So the idea. Good is thing we're all getting paid the same here. <laughs> I mean, that is true. Um, but they the idea was is that like if during that time, if you were as the the baron or the son of the baron or whatever, you had more class, more capital, and it, it would be like you stole a farmer's cow or something. Is that kind of how they looked at it, which is horrifying. But it was given this idea of like, well, he's he's the baron, you just kind of gotta do what he wants, and so uh, whether whatever he's saying, because I swear to God, those two sentences in both of the versions are incredibly muddled because and I I've read a lot of books that are set in that time period. And I was like, OK, I think what you're saying is that you're trying to be polite about this because that would be what you would do if they had had a loving relationship. You would say, you know, I took her against her will because to do any other way to say that she consented would be to impugn her um, virtue. Honor. Yes. To be courteous, I should say it was against her objections, but I did not force her. Oh, uh, right. Because this is all fornication in the eyes of the current or the culture of the time. 
Exactly. And and for women that the punishment for doing such a thing was incredibly harsh. So uh, where it was almost nothing for men, especially the son of a baron. So that's where a lot of that. Good thing we're over all that, too. Right. Exactly. That's that's where. No slut shaming here. Well, not in our podcast. Hell no. no. But that's where all of that comes from. And it's it speaks to Liam Neeson's character. And for me, that was one of the things that I was like. This does feel a bit anachronistic because I don't know how many men would have really considered that at the time because of like the prevailing mores. Like you just didn't think about it in the same way that you do now because, you know, women were property. Women weren't people. And it's really interesting to see the difference that Scott chose to make. And especially with the fact, and this is getting a little bit of a head, so I'm just going to drop it here, that um, the person who gets their story chopped the most is Sabella. And that mm-hmm. to me was really, really frustrating. L- let me say this in that I, w- and this moves into like sort of the next phase of things. The only thing that I like about the fleshing out of Liam Neeson's backstory is that it gives more malicious intent to the soldiers that pursue them it it makes more sense in in that respect right uh, instead of it's just like oh shit he killed the priest we gotta get him right because that would not have been like they they wouldn't have done that at the time like if a if a lord wanted to take this guy and he'd murdered someone it would have been like ah shucks i guess we can't do anything but then all of a sudden there's this huge attack that comes out of nowhere and i was like why are they so dedicated because they want to get liam neeson's land in Mm -hmm. the holy land exactly and it makes much more sense when you have that little bit of context of who his brother is and his brother's um greed and envy and all of that so i actually i I think the brother and uh the brother and the the like the 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 brother and the nephew Mm -hmm. i think they're both in game of thrones because i know uh, nikolai coster waldo is jamie lannister yes uh and then the other guy is i think the what's his Craster, who who mm, lives okay. north of the wall. Mm-hmm, exactly. So next arc that we kind of get is, which the transition piece is the scene that we were just talking about, where um, the what we know to be Liam Neeson's nephew comes in and they attack Liam Neeson, gets stuck with an arrow in the side and accidentally breaks the shaft off, which makes it impossible for them to remove. So, so then, he catches a fever. He does. He does. This is a spot where I do have to jump in and talk a little bit about this forest scene. Excellent. You know what? You just jump in wherever you like, Dan. Thanks. <laughs> Let's hear about Because I was wondering about the the scene is so brutal. Yeah. With, uh, oh, I fucking love it. The fighting. Oh, I love that big, sexy German. I know, me too. He is my hero. I want to cuddle him so much. To me, it also felt the most accurate to the time period with like how brutal it is and the different kinds of weapons they're using and how they decide to fight with them like that all felt pretty accurate to the time yeah and you have a good instinct because from nerds like dave who were able to break down all the weapons and fighting techniques and fencing this seems to be um, by experts acknowledged as the most realistic fighting scene for the time period depicted in the whole film in terms of accuracy of costumes and the armor the weapons for the most part there's little divergences here and there the one thing i could say about swords from all this stuff that i was made to read about swords (laughs) (laughs) 
I fucking love Dave so much. Is Dave, I love you. Two-handed longswords were not really going to be popular or, or in common use for another, I want to say 50 or 100 years. I forget the exact number. Don't hate me, Dave. So a longsword also has a longer handle so that you can hold it with two hands, one on top of the other. And so what you would have been more likely to see in this period is shorter swords or sidearms like the Warhammer that you see get plunged into that uh, the surrendering nobleman's head later and a shield. So that's the type of combat that you would see is knights um, and peasants, but people wearing chainmail protecting themselves with shields and then actually trying to stab each other with swords as opposed to the very common Hollywood trope of people doing cutting each other in half with claymores slashing edge fighting is what you see a lot because it's really dramatic swords clanking into each other by edge and people getting sliced open via the broad edge of a sword and that was kind of uncommon i think for one thing edge on edge is like it's gonna dull your sword out super fast so it's like not so Mm -hmm. it's the way you keep your kitchen knives like if you were just just clang your cutting knives together they're gonna get dull so really actually what they tried to do is stab each other with those swords that's what you would have seen more of and then of course armor and swords are expensive so in terms of lesser non-noblemen something like a smaller dagger or a A short sword short sword or a war hammer like the kind of smaller hammer that you see again this this kill scene would have been more common one thing that always throws me off about this scene is they start it with the guy that's either taking a dump or just sitting in front of a tree, I can't remember, and he gets shot by a crossbow right through the neck. The scout. He's the scout sitting out for watch. Man, the reaction by his whole troop, like that guy must have been the most annoying guy in that group because they were like- (laughs) He was the guy who was pissing in the water, like upstream. I guess that was enough to be like, well, fucking Roger shouldn't have been pissing in that creek. He got what he deserved because nobody bats an eye. You got to piss in the creek downstream. Yeah, nobody bats an eye that he got like, you know, like- entomologized onto that tree with a freaking dart <laughs> like or with a crossbow bolt and i was like what about what about dude was he there? made into a delicious coffee cake sorry that's entomans you know how you pin you, a butterfly oh, into a board. like a butterfly thank you liam okay. for joining the conversation sorry my mind's always on coffee cake. so i did have one question about it though the only thing that really struck me is the arrows like the the bows and arrows because how far it punches through that armor like all the way through their body and through the second you know the front side or the back side or whatever like to me that's a longbow like english longbows can propel that kind of force crossbows had more force mm-hmm. okay um, okay so a, that's where those would have come from not so from i the, think like, those are those are from crossbows if my understanding is correctly the advantage of a crossbow is the force, but it's right. not as good on a range. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's really slow to, you got to crank it. And it's slow to reload. Right. Uh, so, but I think the advantage of the crossbow is that it could punish through armor. I'm sure Dave will correct me in private or in public. They show a couple of the bows and the bows are like maybe as long, like a third as mm-hmm. long as the guy's mm-hmm. arm or two thirds. And I was like, uh-uh, that bow is not going to get the tensile strength to, like, do anything. But then they do show several crossbows, and I was like... The BSG definitely took a crossbow bolt to the neck. Mm, yes, yes. Do we... I don't remember specifically. Do we see a lot of arrows punching through armor plating, or do we just see arrows going through people's chain mail? Because I, I think there's a huge difference there. And I've watched medieval reenactments um, or just armorers who have actually tried Nerd. to answer that question. Yeah, I, <laughs> I'll have to try and find a link to it. This um, weapon will keel. 
I think plate mail at this point wasn't necessarily something that a lot of standard knights had. It was a, mostly a chain mail type situation. Sure. But you are correct in that even an English longbow of the time, and again, Dave, you can jump all over me if I get this wrong, but the demonstration I remember seeing is that within normal fighting ranges, um, actual metal sheet armor was enough. It would get dented and like you would get a huge bruise if you were going to touch that spot um, or get hit by the arrow in that spot, but it was enough to not allow arrows to punch through. But chainmail would not be able to pull. I don't think most chainmail will be able to pull that off. If you're close enough with enough force and the right type of head on the arrow, it could punch through chainmail. So I don't think that's necessarily unrealistic. Interesting, because that was definitely my thought when I was watching it. I was like, mm. again, I could be wrong, but I do know from some of the research that when you see the scene with again the sort of last man standing surrenders, kind of being all cocky, he's like, "Now you have to hold me for ransom," which is a really common thing. And uh, mm -hmm. what does Gottfried say to him when he walks away? Uh, I think he says, like, that's true. Yeah. Anyways, <laughs> he walks away and obviously the signal's been given that, like, we ain't taking no prisoners. And then today. Lucius Varinus fucking stabs him <laughs> in the head with a pickaxe. So if you think uh, about it, the sharp end. Kevin McKid. The sharp end of that hammer that he takes and slams into the guy's head through his chainmail is accurate and exactly how that weapon would have been used. It has a mm -hmm. it has a sharp tip that's designed to go through chainmail. So if you think about an arrow with enough force, it's the same design. You're talking about something narrow and small that's designed to kind of break the links and penetrate punch through. between those links. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So that's as nerdy as we need to get about this scene. And and of course, I just want big sexy Germans arms j just like cradle me as I sleep. I do wish that the German had made it longer because he was a cool me character too. and so different from everyone else. My my German friend is a close student of the law. That's hilarious to me. Yeah. Oh. That oh. like that's the best backing up of what that German just said because he's like I say he's innocent, and if you disagree, then we fight and let God decide the truth of it. And it's just like, that sounds so insane to me. And then the hospital is like, well, no, he studies the law a lot. He's totally right on that, as he's like putting his helmet on. One thing which will have to satisfy our obligatory Italian language moment for the episode is that uh, La Posta di Falcone is from Fiore's manual and completely accurate and how they describe that high stance or the high it's guard. That's how you make that pasta, the pasta of the falcon. <laughs> yeah, pasta di <laughs> pasta versus pasta. But anyways, pasta. Um them, that them was pastas. That was cool that they used a real manual of the time and like that for all Dude, the fencers. Can you please out there. open an Italian restaurant called Pasta of the Falcon? Pasta di Falcone. Ah, fragile. It must be Italian. The next arc, I would say, of the story is about Balian becoming knighted, you know, as Liam Neeson got Godfrey, excuse me, gets the arrow right in the ribs. He's got the uh, the plot plague. Yes, the plot plague. Um, he knights Balian and makes him his official heir, which gives Balian um, land in Ibelin, which is Jerusalem, and he sends him off to go and be a crusader. And takes a boat, and the boat promptly sinks. <laughs> well, we also made uh, Shitty McFathead, oh. the, the guy. Guy de Lusignon. More like Guy de Lusignon. Am I right, ladies? My husband kept calling him <laughs> Guy de Lasagna. That's, that was what he went with. <laughs> no, you cannot make Italian food references because he's French. So come up with a French dish for him. 
<laughs> Guide <Yeah>. loserians <laughs> for my Pittsburgh people. I did. I did really love the shots before they leave of the port of Messina. So, for those of you who aren't familiar with Southern Italian geography, um, where the boot is kicking the ball, so Sicily being the ball and the tip of the boot being the very bottom of Calabria. What what was it? Carabia. Calabria. No, Cala- Cala- yeah, Calabria. Calabria is Cal- the tip of the boot. You Calabria. Know, Cal- you know Calabria, Calabrian chi- chili peppers? They come from that no. region because it's super hot. So the Strait of Messina is that strait in between the two land masses, between the island and the rest of the Italic Peninsula. Messina is across the water in Sicily. So they would have had to take a boat and cross the Strait of Messina and then get on their ship. But so maybe. Is, wait, is Messina. So-, so Messina's on the island side? Not on the it's, main it's side. In, so it's Messina is in Sicily. Correct. Yes. But okay. the Strait of Messina, as it's called, is the gap. Because then that really doesn't make sense from one of my favorite lines in the movie, which is the the fucking best directions I've ever heard outside of the oh, quiet. Right. Man, where it's like you go to where the men speak Italian, then continue to, uh, until they speak something else. Like that's, f- I love that. Yeah, he just that didn't mention a, fant- a couple of boats involved, but it's yeah, a great you have to, right. Oh, so go to where the men speak Italian, continue on to where the men speak more Italian, get on a boat, go to where they also speak Italian, get on another boat, and then when you land, they're not going to speak Italian anymore. It's not quite right. as poetic. <laughs> no, no. That sounds like an Irishman giving directions. Right. It's like, do you see that road over there? Well, don't take that road. Do you no good? The, the only yes. reason I bring it up is to give somebody the opportunity to explain to me where the Port of Messina is and whether they crossed over and then departed for the east or whether they actually left out of southern Italy and never made it to Sicily. Anyways, someone maybe can answer that question for me. But moving on, that, that ship scene is very interesting because it was kind of like, I think they did it towards the end. They definitely did not have a lot of budget left to do it. And so they couldn't afford to build what Ridley Scott would normally do, which is build an entire ship just to crash it onto the beach. The sea is going butt fuck. Like it's crazy. It's just like all over the place. And then it's just like Orlando Bloom's face on a boat that is miraculously steady as hell. Just like there's no like motion to Orlando Bloom. Right. It's just like all these rocky waves crashing over each other. That was Hilarious. And it's apparently a combination of footage from White Squall, which is an earlier Ridley Scott film that I haven't seen, and then a CGI ship. Very popular with the QAnon folks, White Squall. Sure is. Where we go one, we go all, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I saw that move. I saw that shit in theaters with my mom. I saw that with my friend Booyah. It was yes. hilarious. Oh, that's what that's the okay. I've seen the clip where that line is from. Interesting. Yep. But another thing, and this is like a tiny, tiny, minuscule difference. But I, 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 I love minutia like this. There's a difference between the theatrical and the director's cut in this scene. Katie, did you pick it up? No. No. What, did, what was it? Crazy Warty McFuckface. The, the guy who's saying to kill an infidel is not murder. It's the path to heaven. Yes. That's what yes. he says in the theatrical cut. Mm-hmm. To kill an infidel is not murder. It is the path to heaven. Like he's doing a bad Arnold Schwarzenegger impression. <laughs> Put the cookie down! Now! <laughs> Maybe he was Austrian, okay? In the director's cut, the line is, to kill an infidel, the Pope has said, is not murder. It is the path to oh. heaven. Oh, my. Interesting. There's a lot more of that. So in the th- director's cut, 
he's coming at the Pope with it in the theatrical cut. They had him cut that out. And I don't, I mean, was this movie concerned about pissing off the Pope? Yes. By talking about a Pope a thousand years ago. It's not concerned with pissing off the Pope. It's concerned with pissing off Catholics. Catholics well, are- the Cath- I'm a Catholic. And we're, we get pissed off at everything. The Catholics are already pissed at the sort of, pen. I'm assuming, at the pendulum swing with which the Muslims are depicted in this film. So I don't see how a line about the Pope is really going to change the tide of that. But I get, I, I don't either. If they even fucking noticed it. Like, it's so small. But I can see why the studio was like, no, we don't want any direct... Because there's a couple direct references to the Pope in the director's cut that are cut out of the theatrical. But there is another reference to the Pope later, once he arrives in Jerusalem and the Templars are being hung, that still stay or hanged. I don't know which is the proper... Whatever. They're killing the Templars. And <laughs> the the... He's saying so they're being executed for something the Pope would command them to do. And that made it into the theatrical. I think that's a more... um, Ambiguous? Yes. That is a more ambiguous statement. Maybe the Pope would probably want them to kill the infidels. Where it's more saying are these... We're talking about whether or not are these men following, uh, you know, the mouth of God in in the form of the Pope? And should they be blamed for that? Or should we blame the Pope? Whereas the other one is just blatantly saying the Pope's like, kill everybody, it's fine, or kill the infidel, it's cool. Like, those are two very different statements. And I think it's also trying to bring the Pope into the fact that um, the idea of a European nobleman or foot soldier or peasant or anybody uh, signing up for the Crusades and going on this journey and going over there to sort of repel the Muslim invasion or whatever they were calling it at the time um, was not some poetic thing they made up for the film. In the first crusade, Pope Urban I basically declared that any Christians joining the cause would be absolved of all their sins if they joined to fight against the Muslims in the East. Also, it's always interesting when you hear, this happened a lot with Roman times, but you hear the term the world, you know, like the world is big or at the edge of the world. You hear them use that in this light. And it's hilarious when you look at a map of the Mediterranean and you're like, a lot of this is over land. Like, you know, the world doesn't end there, but it's kind of like the world of the Roman Empire. So up towards Middle England. The only world that It was considered the known world at the time. The known world down to North Africa and into the Levant. And- One thing that had been happening, and if you go to Spain, Portugal, um, of course, North Africa, but even southern Italy and parts of Greece, you see the Moorish influence of these uh, Middle Eastern Arabs. You see it in the architecture. You see Christian churches that have all these- Minarets? Yeah, minarets and Eastern architectural details. You just see it all over the place. Um, to the point where Sicilian dialect even has some Arabic words in it. You can hear the Arabic influence in the way those Italians talk. So they, there was an, inc- from the Europeans perspective, there was a surrounding encroachment of Islam and the Muslim world at this point that was covering most of all of North Africa and Egypt. Um, a lot of Portugal and Spain, the Iberian Peninsula. Had come into southern Italy at points earlier, a hundred years earlier, I'd taken over Jerusalem, and then there were all kinds of factions in that part of the Levant. So, this of course fragmented what was the Byzantine Empire and the Eastern Orthodox Church, 
which by this point was sort of being fragmented and turning into these feudal states and the Catholic Church and the Pope, which the Pope was like a military leader at this time. You know, the church had armies. He had his own army. Yeah. Right. And they mm-hmm. went and conquered land in the name of God and then built churches and, you know, made all kinds of money and got taxes from people, etc. Right. And and the split between Eastern Orthodox and Catholicism was relatively new. And it was the first giant major split of the church. You know, later in the Reformation, we would see Luther and all of that and the Protestantism. Right. But this was the first big conflict bet- with inter-church issues. Well, I can't remember the the time period, but one of the uh, – so one of my favorite authors is Umberto Eco, and one of his books that is – one of my favorites of his is called Baudolino, uh, and it takes place in part in Constantinople during a period when it was being sacked from Christians by Christians. So like that kind of schism is – is really interesting and formed a whole lot of their own factions. So, so yeah, what you have going on in the background here is the powers that be political and religious influences, which the big groups being sort of Western Christianity, the Catholic church, Eastern Orthodox church, which is in sort of the losing battle because they're, you know, they're further in the East. And then all these separate Muslim factions often referred to as the Saracens here, but I'm, realizing as I looked that term up that that was never a term used, certainly not by Arabs and not at this time. Well, and that's one of the things that I liked about it was that it seemed almost like a slur that only Christians were using. Like the Muslims never referred to themselves as as Saracens. Right. It was a word they were using to group all of them together when really famously, which is still the situation a lot of the Arab world is in by the time you get to the end of World War One, is that this is these are very tribal societies with much more concentrated cultural allegiances and not a lot of central government and you know the way the West was set up, even all the outside way- of the Ottoman Empire. But the Turks aren't Arabs, right? Okay, so yeah. yeah, the Ottoman Empire is a separate thing. And they were the sort of conqueror and oppressor a lot of the times of these Arab peoples as well. So what you have is Salahuddin, who was the Sultan of Egypt and Syria. And by the way, he was a Kurd, which is not highlighted in the film. Interesting. But he was not Arab, actually. No. Which is that's interesting. Im- that's important. And, and how we should look at this from... When this movie was made, at least. Right. He's also, you know, a a Sunni uh, Muslim. And again, I think it's important that he's not Arab because he's bringing together a lot of these different Arab peoples and uniting them in the fight against Christians. And by all accounts, it seems he was a pretty charismatic and magnanimous leader. I mean, it was pretty forward thinking for the time. My my understanding is that both he and Baldwin IV are not hyper romanticized in this movie in that like for their time, they were pretty forward thinking. Correct. I think that in the, in the end result of some of these battles, which we'll get into, there was plenty of massacres that happen and those were certainly approved by their leadership. But in terms of comparing them to leaders of the time, Saladin was pretty reasonable and a good leader in battle. Um, he took over uh, Nur ad-Din's territory when he died, which I forget what parts of the Middle East he was in charge of, but he didn't have an heir. So a lot of this was Salah al-Din sort of 
coming to power, consolidating power, bringing people together. And they had a common cause, which is also why in this Venn diagram of who's fighting whom, um, oftentimes in the history, you also had at times different feudal factions and different crusader states aligning with different Arab factions to fight some other Christians. So there was a lot of infighting here. It was not always this like, okay, all the Muslims in the East and all the Christians to the West fighting together. It was very fractional and again, took place over 250 years, the various crusades. So a lot going on that we're not going to have the time to really parse out and get into here. Yeah. And I think the important thing to remember was at this time, so this is between the second and third crusades, but at the very, that the newest Pope had uh, stated that this was worthy of excommunication. If you did not fulfill your promised God and was very adamant that Jerusalem needed to be taken and to be held by Christians. And, Baldwin, King Baldwin, who was in charge of the efforts at that time, who only ruled for nine years, which is still pretty impressive for someone with leprosy, mm-hmm. was him and Saladin were both, this isn't the right term, but I'm going to use it anyway, kind of progressive for their era. And pretty they groovy. Both, they both saw that while war was inevitable, um, they both, I think, found this unnecessary. And I think... At least how this movie is portrays them. Reality is is always a different thing. But how the movie portrays them is that they are both seen to be like they understand that the war is pointless and that there will never be a peaceful solution unless they allow both Christians and Muslims and all manner of people to come through Jerusalem and that the who owns Jerusalem is such a temporary thing if they continue to think about it from a militaristic standpoint. Well, and that's one of the great lines in the in the director's cut that Salahuddin has is after Pipsqueak dude with the best beard in the movie mm-hmm. uh, is like, you promised us Jerusalem. Uh, like, I don't like that guy, but his beard is perfect. <laughs> like, it's perfectly edged. I love it. That's all shiny and shit. But afterwards, he says to Groovy Cavalry Guy, he's like, unless I have war, I will never have peace. And I thought that was just like a really, like, it really illustrated some of the burdens that he's feeling uh, and how he's, like, his his mind is on peace, but he knows that he, like, the world isn't going to let him have that without war It's futile. His dreams of peace are futile without War. I think the next scene that we see with Balian is um, they crash land. He crash lands with a horse, and everyone else is dead. And he is in, you know, the Holy Lands, as we're kind of led to believe. And he finally catches the horse, and then he comes upon um, two Arab men, one of whom is played by, in my opinion, one of the best actors in this, which is Alexander Siddig. Shout out to Dr. Bashir from DS9, because uh, that's where he was before this. I just love his eyes. I could swim in his eyes for days. He's such a good actor. So the the conflict that Balian has with these two Arab men, one of whom he sees, he sees as um, the quote unquote master in this situation. And Alexander Siddig's character, Imad, as the servant in this And he proceeds to fight the other guy and eventually kills him and spares Imad. 
He has the opportunity to kill him, but he does not. And Ahmad takes him back to Jerusalem and he ends up giving Ahmad the horse that he was chasing. And it is, I think, one of the most pivotal moments in the film because we come back to that twice more. Mm -hmm. He says, you are a great liar and he will fight you because you are a liar. I have no desire to fight. Then you must give him the horse. What's reinforcing this idea that Balian is is going to avoid violence if he can. Right. And that Balian is um, more interested in the nuance than the average crusader is going to be. And that Balian very much, to his own and everyone else's detriment, follows his own moral code. And that is the first time we really see that come to come into play. Yeah, I think maybe it's... It'll pop up again in the battles, but maybe now's a good time to sort of bring up this overarching theme and bring the world of 2003 into this film. So I'll give you a little bit of what I think about it, and I want to hear what you guys think about this. But this came up a lot in like Last of the Mohicans, Dances with Wolves. Honestly, it, you know, we mentioned it maybe briefly in Hot Shots in reference to a reference about Dances with Wolves. But we have this concept of the noble savage in North American history telling and storytelling that, from what I can understand, seems to be from maybe the late 1800s to the late 1900s was like... It's a fabrication that was spearheaded by James Fenmore Cooper right. and others. So about a hundred for a hundred years, there was this pendulum swing. It's really the only completely American archetype in literature mm-hmm. is the is the concept of the noble savage so right. obviously like by today's standards it's a little fucked up sure but i <laughs> or, or very but i partly yeah. view it as a pendulum swing to the opposite style of the john wayne western where it's like all the indians are unnamed no motivation no you know no tribal culture they're just like the bad guys and we're killing them and I think a lot of this noble savage concept was this exaggeration of, again, like every deer they kill, they're going to like say a prayer to and thank the deer for sacrificing its life and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's this romanticization of these cultures that were obviously just as complex as white Western cultures. And there were just as many bad people as there were good, you know, all of that. It was, but I think it was also, and I and I think I know where you're going with it, but it, I think it was also a way of like making a nod to the air quotes, good ones, as opposed to the, like the exceptions to the rule, as opposed to the rule that all Indians are savages. Mm -hmm. Like, I think that was part of the intent there, but right. And so I thought of that because I couldn't help, but think that in a very, very near to nine 11 post initial war in Iraq, war in Afghanistan place that the world was in that, this was Ridley Scott's attempt and and the writer's attempt to sort of, not that they were doing it directly, but I see a common theme here where they're almost doing the same thing, where the Muslim side of this fighting and the Arab culture is over-romanticized and most of the Muslim characters are shown to be moral men who really are trying to avoid the fight if they can, but they live by on honor system, etc. And a lot of things are based in truth because, again, sort of um, traditional tribal culture 
people had a lot more to stand on on their word because again you didn't have all these institutions whereas western culture you could much more get away with being a liar and making bad contracts and stuff because there was there were institutions to a certain extent to deal with that more so in modern times and so what i see here is a little bit of the opposite where most of the french and most of the crusaders are shown to be these sort of capitalistic murdering savages to a certain extent in the way they're portrayed versus most of the muslim troops uh, or the muslim characters being you know more honorable and more good for lack of a better word and so i i see a little bit of that going on um possibly through something ridley scott was doing on purpose possibly through fear of we want to be really careful not to portray muslims in a bad light and that this film was really well taken in by the Muslim world in 2005 when it came out. And Ridley Scott filmed a lot of this in Morocco, where he had filmed before. He's personal friends with the King of Morocco. And so the King of Morocco gave him a bunch of military troops to use as extras. They kind of changed costumes between Christian and, and Muslim troops. So I think he had a lot of incentive to show the Muslims in a good light for a lot of different reasons. So yeah, I wanted to see what you guys thought of that theory. Yeah, so I don't know that I 100% agree with with it. Like I definitely see the uh, I definitely see where you're coming from with it uh because they are like especially Imad 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 is fucking awesome. Like best so dude cool. ever. Yeah, he reminds me of Omar Sharif's character in uh, Lawrence of Arabia, Sheriff Ali. Yeah, very similar uh in in a lot of in a lot of respects, but like cooler, I think like not opening up with him, like shooting a dude for drinking his water. But when you think about the people who were going to crusade or to go hold Jerusalem, these were people that in many instances had to like, these aren't people that were fucking lighting the world on fire back in France. These were people who were probably poorly educated or had no prospects, possibly criminals like to like fleeing from a murder rap, you know, uh, or, or religious fanatics. I don't think it's unreasonable to paint a lot of the people going to Jerusalem to fulfill their holy obligation or to earn indulgences from Rome. I don't think it's unreasonable to, to paint them as fucking psychopaths. Because I think in a lot of cases, that was probably not far from the truth. Like, you didn't go to Jerusalem at the Pope's orders to, like, go relax and be groovy. Like, he's telling people to go out there and kill Muslims. So, that's what you're going to go do, if that's why you're going there. Well, and to kill infidels, not just Muslims. And infidels right. also included Eastern European, or right. excuse me, Eastern Orthodox Christians. At the time. Right. I mean, but also from a sort of further away perspective, that's not at all that different from any form of motivating a large group of people into going far away and murdering people. No, it's not. But But when you're, I think just the the culture of arabia and the learning in arabia at the time i feel like there was a lot more emphasis put on thought learning laws and science 
than were by Europeans at the time. Possibly, but again, there's a lack of, they don't show any executions, massacres of women and children, which happened on both sides, as well as the taking of slaves, which was super common from when you won battles. Is, yes. which- no, but they mentioned it. They mentioned, they mentioned, uh, Imad says that he's like, I'm your prisoner, your slave, if you wish, like these are your rewards from winning in battle. And they do have them just fucking cut the heads off of everybody in the battle against the army of Jerusalem when he tricks them into coming out. So Mm -hmm. like without going, like, I get what you're saying that like bad things were, were done on both sides, but the as far as like the plot of the movie goes, that wasn't necessarily relevant. Does that make sense? Yeah, like, I can it, see what you're it, saying in the story, in the story that they're spinning. Now, whether the story right. is if the historical accuracy, the historical accuracy of the story that they're telling, um, that might be an issue where they're like cherry picking things or they're mm-hmm. steering it in a particular direction. And that I totally get. But as far as like, going off the beaten path of the story to show the Muslims massacring women and children as well. Doesn't really, that would be like a weird tangent to take for the from story. The main sure. Line. I, yeah. I guess the main point I was trying, yeah. And I don't disagree with the portrayal they chose to go within the story. I guess what I was trying to bring up is more the fact that there's more to the motivations behind why they would show it that way at this time during the making of this film than just the characters and the plot. That's kind of what I was saying. But Katie, what do you think? Definitely. I think there is a sense of, there's a sense of caution with this film and how they are portraying Muslims and uh, Islam in particular. They even go so far as near the end of the film when Balian brings up our people slaughtered you know, all the Muslims in the city or, you know, he, he brings it back to these old massacres and Salah Hadin says, I am not those men. Yeah. That exchange was really good because it summarized so much. The problem that again goes is in a lot of these extended conflicts, but it's such a direct reference to the state of the Middle East nowadays and where right. it's been for the last, you know, I mean, a thousand years, but definitely in the last hundred years of when you stop to think about it, it's like, wait a minute, we're reacting to something that happened a hundred years ago. Your people who killed my people are no longer around. And my people who retaliated and killed your people are no longer around. So like, what the hell are we doing here? Like, why are we fighting? Like, I I love the way that dialogue introduces that. It's so fucking good. Mm -hmm. It's, I mean, we're jumping ahead to the end of the movie, but like that scene (laughs) is so fucking good. But it's brought up again and again throughout the film. Baldwin brings it up much earlier and it it keeps bringing it up about how, you know, we are talking about things that dead people did. We are Mm -hmm. living with the consequences Mm -hmm. of dead people's actions. And I think that's the most accurate, I would guess, because it holds true even today. Even today with what's going on literally right now in Israel and Palestine, like these are things that were set in motion decades or sometimes centuries before any of these act, the people who are doing it right now were alive. And that has a big impact on right. the people who are doing it. And especially the people who are making the decisions as to how to handle it, like Baldwin and Salah Hadin, who are deciding, okay, who, how much is Jerusalem worth? Nothing and everything. How much, how much do we put into fighting this and what's worth sacrificing 
in order to keep the peace, you know, and we can see that, you know, and that's a, that brings us into Balian is really unaware of any of this shit when he <laughs> arrives in Jerusalem. He is just like, huh? is he is he the sexy lamp in his own movie? I think he is, honestly. <laughs> oh, is it time? Is it time to talk about Orlando Bloom and his acting? Are we there? I think he does a good job in this. I think wow. he does what's required of him. Although in that scene with the with where he has the fight with the the guy in the desert over the horse, um, there are a couple of times because there for every time that there is a a perfectly period appropriate expression, mm-hmm. like how they give directions, even though those directions were inaccurate, and they made no sense. <laughs> And they, yeah, but they sort of would not make a whole, like, it's very vague, but it's like, go to where the men speak Italian, then continue until they speak something else. But it would have made sense maybe more at the time. Right. Uh, Then, you know, you have things where they, one of the the little word drops that everybody uses and I'm just in love with is when they say truly instead of really. Mm -hmm. I love that because half of the time it's just like. Sometimes it's actually like, really? That's interesting. And sometimes it's just like the shittiest, snidest truly that you could possibly <laughs> drop. And truly just sums it up so much better than really. Yeah. And I yep. love it. But for all of those, you get things like Orlando Bloom saying, I'm the new one. Right. That felt very anachronistic. The Baron of Evelyn is old. He knew him at Damascus. I'm the new one. Yeah, you would say something like, I am his son, or I'm his descendant. Yeah, and uh, so, and then you have uh, uh, Reynold de Chatillon saying, what are you looking at? Oh, God. I'm just like, character. oh, like, what do you look at would be better. <laughs> you could have just said, what do you look at? Instead right. of, what are you looking at? But, so, Balian gets to Jerusalem, and he is, you know, a blacksmith from France. He has no concept of politics or the inherent difficulties in this area. He still calls the Muslims Saracens and refuses to call them anything else throughout the whole movie. Oh, and also, he he looks at them when they're at the, uh, we're at Messina waiting to leave. At their, their prayer. What are those or who are those? And he goes, they're Muslims. <laughs> Why are those are funny those guys kneeling at the sun? It's like he's never seen a Muslim in his life, which was interesting. Well, why would he? He probably hadn't seen one because they wouldn't have made it that far in France. I mean, even if the propaganda reached that far, that's all that he's heard of them, you know? So he gets there and he is almost immediately thrown into the deep end of the political spectrum. You know, I mean, Guy. Guy de Lusignon. Guy de Lusignon comes in and... Guy de Lusignons. And he meets, he ends up meeting uh, Princess Sibella and King Baldwin. And they all just kind of are like, oh, you're your dad's son, eh? Well, I trust you implicitly. And in Sibella's case, I would like to bone the hell out of you. And that's apparent from day one. And it's kind of like... Why do you trust this this poor kid who has no concept? It's like Orlando's big day. It's, yeah. It's like, hey, I'm new in town. Uh, first, can I have that towel, please? And also, I'm going to meet the king. This is like, this is how D&D sessions go. Right. Where it's like you go into town, you're like, I would like to speak with the king. Right this way. Roll, and roll the a charisma check. comes and makes a, a sexy eye at you for giving her water. And here is where I want to talk at least a little bit about Sabella. Did Sibylla and, and Liam Neeson fuck? 
Are we to understand that? I mean, yeah, I think so. I think so. It's also one of the biggest departures from the real history that I don't think there was any romantic involvement, not only between not only between Balian the Younger, but also Balian the Elder and Sibylla is not it is not just reported by any primary source at the time. Well, I, and I've also heard that uh, Sibylla and Guy de Luzerians were all up on each other, like fairly constantly. Like they they were digging it, is what I heard. It did sound like she chose him. I mean, obviously they were a political marriage. And was all fine with him taking taking the crown. And it would have been un thinkable for you to do something like that in Jerusalem, maybe in the court in France, that would have been totally different taking a lover or two in France or England or Spain or something like that. But in Jerusalem, you would never have done something like that because the risks would have literally been being stoned to death or beheaded because they were still observing the laws of Jerusalem at the time. So you just, well, she does go to Eblin to fuck him. And in the director's cut, they've got that line where she's like, we can't meet in Jerusalem. It's too risky. Right. And and like, so it obviously that part of it felt very fake to me. And here's where the director's cut deviates from the theatrical in a way that I was really pissed off about in that it cuts out Sabella's character and makes her like a femme fatale. And in the director's cut we get to see that she is driven for love of her son and that she is trying to both save the kingdom and save her child and do what's best and we get a lot more complications for her personality and she just feels so flat in the theatrical cut and it was to a certain extent i was like you almost don't even need to be here you are almost a, an unnecessary character. Well, they're they're portraying her decision when she says, "If I can have your, if I have your knights, then you have your wife." Where she's deciding to, you know, back up her husband Guy, who's the new king of Jerusalem. But the sacrifice doesn't make any sense at all once you remove her son. Not only like the situation her son was in, and the fact that she killed him to. You know, because she didn't want him to suffer with leprosy, etc. But he just doesn't even exist in her world at all, as if she'd never even had a son. And that's probably point number two, where I would say, how could you possibly prefer the theatrical cut? Because it completely not only ruins her character, but like you said, you could just you might as well take her out of the movie at this point, too, because once her son isn't in the picture again. I'm not talking about the real history where she seemed to actually be aligned with her husband. But if we're going to talk about the way the story is written for these characters, what in the hell is she sacrificing everything of herself to be with this dude if her son doesn't even exist? That didn't make any sense. Right. She's just a minx in this. And that's very dissatisfying. A couple of things. Uh, First of all, I did not judge her so harshly in the theatrical cut when I when I first saw it. Well, neither did I, but that's definitely the kind of message the film is sending by it not including that other information. I don't necessarily agree with that. Like it, it, so the director's cut fleshes her out more, but what I got from the theatrical cut wasn't a flat character to me. There were some things that 
didn't completely make sense, but I was sort of fine with like in an ambiguous sort of way, the mostly her motivations after Guy is crowned the cutting of the hair and the working as a nurse incognito during the battle, that kind of thing. But don't you think that it makes her character out to look completely out for herself and selfish in her motivations, as opposed to when she's doing all of this to try and save her son initially? Not really. I don't, I don't think that she looks necessarily selfish because first of all, like how many things have to go wrong for this woman for it to be okay. Lost her brother to leprosy. Her husband's a psychopath that she needs if she's going to keep the crown and her head. She's in love with somebody else. And that guy just refused to marry her. (laughs) How heartbreaking. As a person, that would, that would fucking suck. Like in a grand historical scale. No, but if we narrow this down, if we're talking about like the character's motivations and what the character is feeling, I don't necessarily like look askance at that. You know what I mean? Like it's like, it sucks. It's not cut your hair and like work in the basement, patching up wounds sucks. But like you add on top of that, the fact that the guy she loves won't marry her. The guy she is married to sucks. And her, her brother just died of leprosy. But on top of that, the decision that she made that Guy is now in charge of the army absolutely ruins Jerusalem. And it's plain to see from everybody with eyes. And now she has absolutely nothing that she can do to stop what's coming. Like there's, she's completely helpless in, in the face of what is coming. She has no say. She has no knights. She's got squat. Right. She's powerless. She's absolutely powerless, yet she's supposed to be the ruler of the kingdom. And the kingdom is going to fall apart and everybody's going to be murdered, including her. That feels like enough to me. It doesn't need to be a maternal instinct for her to crumble under those sort of circumstances. Like, I I get it. And and I will agree that I think it's better, but I don't know if I needed it to like the character. Again, it's like the things that they add back in the in the director's cut is justifications for seemingly shitty, irresponsible behavior. See, I can see that, but I think for me, when I was watching the theatrical cut, because I again didn't know what was in the director's cut, sure. I was like. What is going on with this lady? Because how she is being portrayed by Ava Green does not match, for me, that kind of impetus. Whereas when I see the director's cut, it's like, okay, I can see why she's doing this. And her performance really fits with the motivations of the character. Whereas I would expect her, if, if she was doing it all for herself and like try, or just trying to survive there would have been something different in the performance, whereas it feels like her motivation is very much not about her and it's not necessarily about Jerusalem. So that kind of was like a light bulb clicking on for me when seeing, oh, she has a kid and that's what she's doing this for because her motivations felt very unselfish with how she's portraying it. And I think it could have worked without it being her son, but I think we would have gotten a different performance from Ava Green if that had been the case. And, and I would have liked sense. to see a different performance because it would have 
it, it just doesn't feel like it quite matches the story that's being given. And especially after, you know, in both the director's and the theatrical cut, when she kills her son, like her grief and loss after that has almost no place in the director's cut. Like, I'm sorry, in the theatrical cut, because someone who doesn't have that reason for investment would be far more like, fuck it, I'm out. Whereas she knows that by killing her son, she brought this on in a certain way. Not really, because, ma'am, you had no choices. You had nothing but bad choices. Yeah, she brought it on regardless by son or no son. I mean, the men brought it on, let's be clear, Liam. She had no real choice in any of this. Exactly. She couldn't have chosen anyone else to be the king. That wouldn't have been allowed. That wouldn't have happened. Right. And that's, I think, why Baldwin apologizes to her. He's like, I'm sorry. No, I kind of fucked you over here. But her son really has no bearing on that choice whatsoever. Well, I think she she doesn't get the choice. Yeah. From a plot standpoint, like the son really doesn't need to be there. It makes her breakdown more empathetic to a modern audience. I understand why they cut it out because it doesn't actually impact the plot. It's kind of like Indiana Jones. If he had just stayed at home, the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark would have been the same. He doesn't actually need to be there. And I don't think she needs that additional motivation, especially since again, at the end, talking about like doing a lot with very little, as far as the lines go, when Jerusalem has, has been surrendered and she's like, what do I do now? I'm still queen of Tripoli and like three other places, you know, like what's on her mind. Isn't like, Oh, thank God. It's like, Oh, but I, I'm still supposed to do this thing for these other places. Right, I still have these responsibilities that I'm supposed to handle. And I think all of that is pretty soundly established and depicted in the theatrical cut. I will grant you that I think it works a little bit better with the sun in because like you said, she's reacting to things like her. She just had to kill her son when she didn't. (laughs) when she didn't didn't have a son to be killed and her intense immediate need to like connect with um balian like that is a calculated move it's not because she loves him from afar or anything it's she has a need and a desire and if she doesn't have that needing to save her son then who the hell is she trying to save i don't think and and that's another place where we differ is I don't think that her wanting to bone Balian and loving him from afar has anything whatsoever to do with her son. Oh, I think it's all a very calculated. I do, well, that makes it sound shittier. But, uh, like, no, not as a woman at that time. As a woman at that time, if you weren't calculating, especially in that level of power, if you were not calculating, then you were an idiot and you were going to die quickly. Like you had to think about how your relationships, who you had sex with, like you did not have the privilege or option to just have love. You had to have a reason for it. Otherwise, right. But that's, but I don't think I, I would be surprised if that were in the director's vision, as far as why she wants to sleep with Balian. I think it's more the fact that she immediately comes to him and is immediately sexual from that first moment where she comes into his house and meets him and gives him the sexy eyes. And then when they're walking after, well, she goes there specifically to check him out. Exactly. 
And then she goes and meets King Baldwin. And then, oh, you're the son of Godfrey. Mm, I'm with you because Godfrey supported her. And now this is her next source of support so that she can hopefully make it out alive for her and her son. It doesn't mean there isn't love, but it just means that to me, it feels more realistic when she has that reason behind it, because women at the time had to have a reason. That's that nullifies the like the distant, like the literal, like longing from afar that she does with him. You can have both. Okay. Yeah, you can have both, but like you can find that you can find love and passion in your salvation, but you don't need it to get the salvation out of it. Right. Is what I'm saying here, especially when it comes to women of that period. This is a very unique case, I think. This film, in the way in which it was shot and produced and edited, where Ridley Scott was all but bracing for the fact that he had no control over allowing the theatrical cut to release. But I think he knew what was going to happen, which is it was not going to do oh, well. Oh, you think so? Yes, I, that, this is my theory. So, and okay. the reason I think that is when you read about it, these decisions to shoot the film in a certain order and edit it a certain way were done way early. Again, famously, uh, Dodie Dorn, the editor, took 15 months to edit this film, a process that would normally take, you know, four to six months because she was editing both versions of the film at the same time. And in some of the making of stuff, she comments saying, because she was assigned this, I don't think she was happy about it either, but she understood what Ridley Scott was trying to do. And she was like, okay, I'm trying to cut two versions of this film where the plot makes sense in both of them. And so her comment was, the holes were not plot holes, they were character holes. So the characters would be missing things by what was edited out, but the plot still made sense and was still cohesive and fit together. She said the theatrical cut, which is was a, I'm paraphrasing, but she said it was a much less emotional experience with less in-depth characters. And also another thing that the theatrical cut did is it made Balian a much more prominent protagonist, whereas the director's cut spends a lot more time with Sibylla and with Guy and with the king, who we haven't even talked about very much yet, but um, Baldwin IV, who I thought was a fascinating character, Played by Edward Norton somehow. Edward fucking Norton. Yeah, we'll we'll talk about that in a second. But yeah, anyways, th those those are the actual editor's comments about it. And I think it's unusual for everyone that's filming, probably at some of the stages during actual filming, to know that this was going to go down. I feel like they had producers meetings and Ridley Scott could see the writing on the wall and was sort of like trying to film sequentially and make the editor's job because it was going to be a nightmare as easy as he could because he kind of knew what was going to happen to the point where the DVD of the director's cut may not have come out till a year later, but it was commissioned a month after the film released. So the production went tits up wow. right away where they were like, whoops, we made a mistake. Okay, Ridley Scott, do your magic. And he was like- Already got it in the works, Yeah, man. this ain't my first rodeo. You know what I mean? We don't got to do reshoots Although the same around. thing goes, I would not be surprised like Ridley Scott working with actors the way that uh, I assume that he does, uh, just based on the results that he gets. I would not be surprised if none of that made it to the actors during the time. Possible. That's something that does not belong on their plate. But his direction no. may have been motivated by having those things in his head, which mm -hmm. is certainly, of course, part of a director's job. But speaking of the performances, mm -hmm. let's start with Edward Norton. 
because everything should start with Edward Norton. Who wanted to be, <laughs> who was successfully uncredited in theaters and then somehow yes. they forced it to be credited in the DVD. So eventually the secret was out. But because he was wearing a mask the whole time, for whatever reason, he wanted to not be known. When you stand before God, you cannot say, but I was told by others to do thus. Or that virtue was not convenient at the time. This will not suffice. So Edward Norton's performance in this is amazing. I love this so much, and I wish that he had been nominated for Best Supporting Actor for this. I just love his character in general. Well, his character was amazing, but... So there is a completely, we're, we're entering my wheelhouse now where history I'm talking out of my ass, like at least 50% of the time, but mask acting is so wildly different from non-mask acting. I would imagine. You guys have seen V for Vendetta. Yeah. Yes. No, you haven't. Well, Hugo Weaving who plays V Mm. wasn't V the whole time. He was brought in to replace, I think it was Stuart Townsend was was originally cast in the role. Um, But he just couldn't, like, he quit because he couldn't handle acting with the mask on. I could see how Hugo Weaving could, though. That guy's amazing. He's amazing in it. Hugo Weaving was able to do it. But, I mean, so things like, if you want to look sad when you're acting, you know how to do that, right? Like... You, you can make a sad face. However, if you want to be sad and you have a mask on, it's there's like there, there are actual like ways to do it where you it's head positions. It's the tilt, but also so like with and I wish people could see this, but like if you turned your head like about 45 degrees, just like it was on a pivot on your head. So not that you're like leaning your head over, mm-hmm. like your neck stays stationary, but your head tilts and you kind of like look upwards in that position. Like you put a mask on and that looks mournful as fuck. Hmm. Like it's just, like, this is stuff that the Greeks came up with that you had to be able to read from hundreds of feet away in the back of the outdoor theater. So right. that's kind of stuff that you have to like be trained on. I don't know what kind of training Edward Norton went through. I'm assuming it was fairly extensive, but like, this is a masterclass in acting with a mask on throughout this whole thing. Like his body is great in this. He looks like he's being worked like a Bunraku puppet, like the way he walks and the tilt that his body has everything about his physical performance in this is absolutely the tits. Yeah, when he falls over exhausted after the... Well, they don't depict the Siege of Carrick, but they're in Carrick at... at Unholy ass-whooping that he lays on Mad-Eye Moody. Mm-hmm. And then he falls <laughs> over. I love all that body language. Yeah, it's Brendan Gleeson. I forgot that Brendan Gleeson... I, I couldn't think of it. I was like, I know he's in Harry Potter, but I can't remember. This is my favorite, I think, departure from history in the film. There is... No historical record whatsoever that Baldwin IV wore this mask. In fact, I don't even know if a mask like this was a thing that any leper did. I someone can write in. I didn't but it see fucking should have been because oh, damn. It's, well, it's great. It wasn't for unusual them. for lepers to wear masks or bandages across their face. Uh, bandages, sure, but a metal mask like this—that's very specific choice. How many lepers had the money to go like cover their face in silver too? Sure. I also didn't notice until his death scene this time around 
that that mask has a very detailed like goatee and eyebrows and yeah stuff facial hair close. and a fucking badass nose like i hope that's what his nose really looked like because that was <laughs> distinguished as hell like i i have two more things to say about that mask and i want to i don't you guys might not know these things so i want to see what you think do you like fancy mask better or plain mask wait did he wear two different masks Yes, oh, because shit. when he shows up to Carrick, I'm always it's got something. all this like ivy and leaf work on it. Oh, yep. but the yep, one that man. he wears the rest of the time is just plain, like a pewter silver looking. I can't be objective about that. I like the intimate scenes where he's laying down and dying and sort of whispering more. So I like that mm. mask more simply because of the scenes that it was in. Yeah. So an interesting tidbit. I can't even remember where I read this. This might have been in our research. In this Spanish language version, I think like produced in Spain of this film, I don't know who gave him this direction, but the actor that dubbed Edward Norton um, gave a completely different performance where, really? yeah, you'll have to read about it, but basically he delivered all the lines as if the king was already dead and kind of a spirit. And I'm not exactly sure how he did that. I'd have to go listen to it or read more about it. But I was like, wow, that's a cool choice. Who told you to make that choice? And I wonder what that sounds like. So imagine- That would be interesting. Castilian Spanish, most likely, and this sort of more Mm. eerie performance that isn't um, as warm and intimate and understanding and is more ambiguous and spooky. I was like, that's a really cool choice. That was- my first point. My second point, and it's like not the end of the world. It doesn't ruin the film. But here I felt like Liam where I was like, I don't get why you did that. I hated that when Sibylla goes to visit him, she pulls off his mask to look at him. And then we get horrified by his disfigured face. And then she puts it back. Now, I get that she may have wanted to see her brother's face one last time. But the way she acted and the way they shot the scene, all I got was, let's gross everyone out and show how bad leprosy is. And that seems to be her reaction as well. I didn't see a loving reaction in her face. I didn't see a neutral reaction where she was like, let me look through this disfigurement into my brother's eyes. It didn't feel like that at all. I would have loved to cut this scene out of the movie. I did not like that scene at all. A couple of things. There's a bit of dialogue in the director's cut that wasn't in the theatrical cut that is where he, if I I don't think it made it into the theatrical, but where he's talking about, uh, remember me as I was like when they're talking about how beautiful they each are. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. and so there's kind of a betrayal there that she is executing upon her brother by looking at his horrible fucking face right now. But also, I think the reason they did that, not only to like show what he looked like under the mask for the people at home, but also so they could do that thing later where she's looking into the the sort of like hammered metal mirror and she starts to like stare at it until her face becomes his face. Yep. yep. Also tear. I hated that too. Yeah. So like, I think those were that mirror scene is probably why they decided they had to have that in there because they wanted that to be like a thing where now we can debate whether or not that was an effective illustration of her mental state at the time where like, what was she feeling about herself? Does she see this decay in herself and in Jerusalem as a whole? Mm -hmm. Like that's what that mirror shot was supposed to be setting up. 
but you don't get that if you don't see his horrible fucked up face interesting in that scene i could see that if you had committed to the mirror scene showing his mask in the mirror wouldn't be effective because that's a piece of metal it's not him and showing Edward Norton's real face, everyone would be like, who the fuck is that? <laughs> right, right. Right. And it also doesn't, like, the mask isn't indicative of the decay. It's the face that is. Right. Right. And and yeah. modern audiences aren't going to really understand what leprosy does to someone. It's not something that's common now. I think we're really letting the audience off the hook there. Like, leprosy is still a thing in Africa, and it's, like, pretty famously written about in the Bible and stuff. Like, it's not that. No, it's it's more controlled now. Am I correct? Like, it used to be just like, well, fuck that guy, throw him in the pit. Yeah, no, there is, there is treatment for leprosy. It's a bacterial infection, and it can be treated with antibiotics. It, it, am I correct in thinking that it's not as debilitating contagious as they as they thought it was leprosy it's counterintuitive because the images you think are of people being confined to leper colonies and nobody except nuns is willing to touch them etc and so you would think that there's a fear of it like the black plague where you're like i'm not getting anywhere six feet 12 feet 50 feet or i'm gonna get this leprosy is actually very non-contagious you have to you really have to swap some bodily fluids and get some of that bacteria in your system. And then your system has to fail to combat that bacteria and it has to take hold for you to then get leprosy from what I was reading. Um, so it's interesting because it's counterintuitive. But I don't think they knew that no. at the time. I think it was just like, fuck, all these guys are turning into lepers. Like, And leprosy was considered kind of like one of those like God is punishing you type diseases by stripping pieces away from you but i think leprosy when we when we think of it you know because the most common way of portraying leprosy in a movie especially movies previous to this is you wrap someone in rags and they're missing body parts yeah stuff. like a nose is half chewed off or falling off it, interesting another parallel to braveheart because uh the bruce's father is confined to a tower and has leprosy in that Did you hear about the leper hockey game no there was a face off in the corner Oh, Apologies to our lepers in the audience. Oh, I love you dearly, and I know you're not contagious. This is actually when we're talking about performances, and I'm sure we'll get to Orlando Bloom. Oh yeah. But talking about Brendan Gleason, who has such a small role in this, but is such a big such player a presence too. So first of all, I want that kind of big dick energy. Where like when I know a king is coming out, or like when anybody is coming to my house or rather anytime I just happen to leave my house where I just feel like the appropriate thing to do is to shout my own name. I don't know why that cracked me up so much this time around. Maybe it was cause I watched it three times, but it's just like when he's just like walking out of his own house to people who like already know where they are and who he is. Right. And he just walks out going, I am Randall to Chateau. <laughs> and I'm just like, that's fucking funny. I love that. And when he's galloping around in the, in the cage, when he's talking to Guy, yeah, and he's, he's like, just oh, doing this weird, like, calisthenics, bro? he's got this weird arm motion thing. Like he's <laughs> like, he's square dancing in slow motion. <laughs> yeah. And he's just talking throughout it like he's just sitting there casually Nothing. and not doing some crazy dance. One of the things I don't like about the director's cut is they turn the hospitaler into 
maybe God. Another another Harry Potter alumni with uh, David Thewlis. I love him. I like to think of him as a big Lebowski alum. Oh yeah, that's right. He is because he's the weird mousy little dude. The the video artist. You know, I had to look him up the first time I saw this film because I thought for sure, and it's something about his mannerisms. I thought for sure he was like Alan Rickman's brother or cousin. I just felt like their mannerisms were similar and just the no, way I could you see, see what I'm going, saying. Yeah. It, yeah, he's not. I They're unrelated, but I definitely thought so. So yeah, the God angle is like brought up in the trivia. It's like not a secret. It's almost like Ridley Scott talked about maybe kind of sort of trying to do that. But then what I hadn't noticed before is then David Thewlis's head is in a pile of heads. Yeah, he got his head cut off. And I was like, Mm -hmm. well, obviously he's not a god if he got murdered in this battle. Like, that doesn't make any more sense. So it was like... No, but he's speaking as he's speaking as the voice of God. He's the he's the voice of reason throughout the film. Yes, but you don't need to have him be magical. And I feel like that lessens the character. It cheapens the character to have him be a magical mirage man. But the thing I love about the thing I love about the hospitaler's character is that first of all, he has no other name besides the hospitaler. Yep. yep. Uh, but also the fact that like that guy is so loving that when he talks about bad stuff, he has a smile and a twinkle in his eye that isn't there when he talks about stuff that you would acknowledge as good. It's like so comforting. Like if your puppy were hit by a car, you'd want David Thewlis as the hospitaler to break the news to you. And by he's like, goodness is in right action. And what you do every day, you will be a good man or not (laughs) or not. Yeah. That was a great line. Like he just got that twinkle in his eye. And he's like, if God has purpose for you, it'll keep you safe in his hands. If not, God bless you. (laughs) <laughs> I'm just like, oh, that guy's great. He's such a fatalist. It's so fantastic. He's like, I don't think less of you. You're just not going to be a good man. In case anyone was as confused as me to the origins of the name Hospitaller and what those are, since they don't really get into any lore or history of the Knights Templar. I don't think they even like call that. him a, a Hospitaller. Like, they call him that in the, like, I don't remember no. that being said in the movie. No, I don't think, I don't it, think is. it is. He's just it listed that way in the cast of characters. So, first of all, most hospitalers came from Italy. So, like some of these knights would have been French, he probably would have been an Italian. But the. But instead, he was British. (laughs) Right. But like everybody. This was a a sort of related to Knights Templar, but it was an order founded in the 11th century at St. John's Hospital. So, initially, it started as these were like medical personnel, I guess. And then mm-hmm. in the 1130s, they picked up a military role. So they held on to this name, Hospitaller, although like David Dulles' character might not have ever worked there or done anything like that. Mm-hmm. It was his his order. They were like right, exactly. monk warriors. Just like monks have different orders. It was kind of like that. And while I, I don't think we, we don't have time to get into the history of the Knights Templar, one thing that I could say is that they left out the sort of financial and banking role that the Knights Templar had in this time period. Rich as fuck. Yeah, entirely. I mean, which is fine. They didn't have space that's for it. That's its own movie. But it's just interesting that that's a thing, which I didn't know. That was their main role. Like, they weren't actually all that militaristic like they are portrayed in here. Like, the Knights Templar were much more about managing banking and finance and getting and escorting and sex people. sex magic and... Uh, that came later. But escorting people from, you know, Christendom to the Holy Lands was kind of their their role in society at the time. Briefly, before I give this point, I just 
we're going to get murdered if we don't mention a little bit of like the combat production design stuff. But just briefly, I wanted to say it's incredible. Again, if if there's one thing no one could argue with is that Ridley Scott takes his production design super seriously. The budget for the flags that they made for this film was $125,000 just, oh just for banners and flags. It was $130 million well spent, I have to say, because it looks gorgeous. That's true. And if you told me it was $200 million, I wouldn't have been surprised. So one thirty sounds almost like a bargain considering what they pulled in, off. In $2006, that's like $200 million. <laughs> No, but I mean, even for 2006, because Titanic was, wasn't it $200 million in 97? I think it was. So I'm saying if this had been $200 million in 2005 or three or four when they were producing, I wouldn't be surprised. They made... Twelve to 15,000 costumes, like chain mail. I mean, think about twelve to 15,000. Like, that is a lot. By the way, Weta Workshop did a lot of, like, the chain mail stuff. Those guys are great. We've interviewed them for, because they did the miniatures in 2049, the, like, LAPD building and oh, like, nice. the cityscapes. And we've interviewed those guys before. Um, Chris is a friend of ours there who does a lot of model making. And then on his own time, makes he's like a swordsmith and a blacksmith and does all kinds of stuff like that so really cool work and i appreciate that and it really shows if there's a couple of points i could make superficially about things that i don't like about ridley scott's film from this era it's the low frame rate slow motion in certain action scenes that has not aged well at all and it was just a thing that he was it's forced slow-mo it's when they don't yes they don't plan in advance for it to be slow motion but they decide after the fact that they want it to be and so it looks choppy right but, but i think it's right it's because the frame rate's slower or maybe they're not filming it with the right kind of camera to do slow-mo maybe that's what it is because you're saying it's unplanned like if you if you do because there are times that he does smooth slow-mo which is different in this movie which is and that yeah. works and it, you have and it to works. shoot it at a higher frame rate. You have to, to shoot it at a slow. higher frame rate. So what a lot of times you'll see, and if you watch anything that was ever directed ever by Kenneth Branagh, you're going to see forced slow-mo all over that motherfucker. It is yeah. everywhere. Because that man likes to decide something should be slow motion after he's already filmed it. And it just doesn't work. And it, he does it in Gladiator as well. And it looks terrible in the forest scenes. And I'm like, this mm -hmm. scene would be so great if you weren't doing this choppy shitty uh low frame rate slow motion so i hate that and i wish i i don't think he does it anymore and i'm glad really scott has like grown out of that um the blood spatter too holy shit is that heavy-handed i mean when when guido lusignon is in battle and like the person he's inflicting his sword strikes on isn't even on screen and literally there's just it feels like there's someone off screen with a bucket of blood just launching it into his face when he That's slices probably down. literally what happened right and yeah, i'm and probably. i'm just like that looks so stupid and un and not real so i hated that but it's just kind of like a sign of the times i think it was happening a lot but you know again when you when you do the siege of jerusalem i mean the amount of plaster and rock and wall that they actually built the real trebuchets they built like two real trebuchets they could launch a hundred pound boulder 1300 feet i mean these people were making medieval weapons the siege towers right which are not historically accurate i remember reading that in this region in previous sieges on jerusalem there had been one siege tower built in a hundred years because there's no wood or trees in the area it's like a freaking right. desert so it's right. like where did you get 12 of them so what they did for the production though is they built one siege tower 
And then in the scene where they shoot the harpoons through it and pull them down, they just filmed it with like 11 different cameras and showed the tower falling from different angles. And then they composited it into that scene. And it looks phenomenal. I mean, you want to talk about one of the masters of blending CGI with practical effects. Ridley Scott is one of those people. He did it before CGI even existed. And I think he has adopted CGI into his filmmaking and production design um, in a very seamless way. And like the way it should be done is just beautiful as opposed to modern Aquaman style garbage that I won't ever even watch. Can I, can I also just interject real, I hate to step on your, your breakdown, but I would be remiss if I didn't mention from the siege in Jerusalem the night before when they're planning to attack the St. Christopher gate. One of my favorite cinematic burns comes from our, our guy, Ahmed, Ahmad, when he's like the St. Christopher's gate, whenever they seal up a gate, the place where they sealed up the gate is weaker. And then like awesome beard McPipsqueak is like, or maybe it's stronger. And he just looks at him and he goes, no, it is weaker. Rashid has seen it. And he like points to his eye. Like you're so stupid. I have to point to the thing that you see with. Yes. And that has me in stitches. Every time I watch this movie, it's like Rashid has seen it. And I'm just like, that's funny. You're not even Rashid. (laughs) <laughs> like Rashid's the other guy who's talking. The other, the other guy said it. It's I love that so much. While I'm still in my pre-breakdown, last thing I'll mention since I'm the one that's keeping this up now is um, speaking of history and real scenes, one of the ones that you could guess maybe isn't historically accurate, turns out it actually is. And it's the scene after the horns of Hatton, the battle of Hatton that they lose where, you know, he gets pulled out and they get go away from water and get slaughtered when they're in Saladin's tent talking to him. And then Brandon Gleason's character comes up and they're sort of discussing the terms of, you know, post battle, you know, et cetera. And he takes, is it the ice in the chest? No. So that's real. They definitely did have a runner go get snow from one of those mountains in the background and then somehow made it back. That was like a real thing. I'm like, that's pretty crazy that they brought snow back from the mountains, but no, it's the death scene and how Salahuddin, uh, kills. Riddle de Chatillon. Thank you. How do you forget his name? He yells it every time he leaves a room. The way he kills Renel de Chatignon is directly linked to the line, which I think is in both versions of the film, but correct me if I'm wrong, where he takes the water and drinks it. And Salahuddin says, I did not give the cup to you. So that goes back to traditional Muslim, well, tradition and culture in that if you offer someone food or drink, you are telling them that they're safe with you and that you're providing them shelter, etc., so he basically right. announced, like, I was going to kill you anyways, but now you took water without me offering it to you in front of everyone. And now I, like, have absolutely not even a cultural politeness reason to not murder you. And so he kills him right there. And while they don't know what was said in the real history, they do think that that's what happened. He either stabbed them and then had someone behead him or he stabbed him and then beheaded him there. So Did that guy really kill his sister? No. Okay. No. In the history, there's no indication that he, he did kill uh, Salahuddin's sister. Now, there's a, 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 a question that I had that I, I was unable to find answers on. When she says, when before he kills the sister, 
and she says something something Salahuddin. And he says, I know. Is she saying I'm Salahuddin's sister? I believe so. That's the impression in my head canon. She says to him, Salahuddin's going to kill you. I know that's not what she says, but they don't subtitle it. And he's already been told that it's Salahuddin's sister. So, like, I love in my mind that he thinks she's saying, don't kill me, I'm Salahuddin's sister. But instead, she's saying, if you do this, Salahuddin's going to kill you. Well, I, I think you you can have it your way, Liam, because I don't think she has to say, don't kill me. She can just confirm, I am Salahuddin's sister, and he knows what that means. So, right. and that is what happens. In my brain, I like it to play out that way, where he's like unconsciously saying, yes, I know I'm about to be killed. Yeah, that's kind of cool, because it does make him into the sadistic, like, sociopath that he's shown to be in the film who really like needs to have war and just loves killing people all right so i think it's about time for the breakdown where we talk about what the objective of the film was was it on target and did we like it liam so i have a lot to say about this movie and i will i will struggle with my own nature to keep it brief i saw this movie in 2005 and the country had not recovered from not even the trauma of 9-11. It hadn't even yet recovered from the hysteria of 9-11. And this movie being made the way it was made at the time that it was made is one of the ballsiest big budget blockbuster epic sword and sand. Like the idea of making this movie relatively like pr- pretty much right after 9/11 with the climate of the country being what it is the climate of the world being what it was is so unimaginably brave to me and when Dan you were talking earlier about is it being cautious overly cautious with its depiction of the muslims i don't think it is i think It's not like they're being careful about what they say about the Muslims. I think it's saying something very, very specific about them intentionally. And that is that they're human beings who have just as much a right to exist as anybody else, because this country needed to be reminded of that at the time and still does that, you know, people who aren't Christians exist, breathe air have rights and have worldviews that are equally as valid as being white European people on this podcast. This movie was a breath of fresh air to me back in 2005. I really loved it. And maybe my, maybe that feeling hasn't gone away for me, which is possibly why I liked it better than people liked it at the time, because I've been told that I'm not patriotic enough uh, many times following the following that that time period by people I like to my face, like people I know. And so this was a movie that sounded and looked like somebody trying with both hands to hang on to the the kite string of sanity that was quickly just being swept away. And I will always love this movie for that. 
even with its imperfections, whichever, whichever version of the movie you watch, this was, this was a movie that was made in the middle of a political hurricane that nobody else was making movies like this, except for Ridley Scott. And nobody was getting the budget for a movie with this kind of message, except for Ridley Scott. And, and it's really summed up in one shot. Like he spent an awful lot of time making this movie when everything that he wanted to say in the movie was summed up in the shot at the last battle where the foot soldiers on both sides uh, or literally on both sides of the breach and the aerial shot of the camera coming up. And it's like, they're just, it's just this mass of humanity pressing against each other. And the camera starts to turn until you can't really tell which side is which necessarily, or like the, the point is, is that from that elevation, you can't see a difference and they're not getting anywhere and they're not doing anything except crushing into each other. That really just wrapped up what the filmmaker's intent was for me was that, that shot. And it hit me in the theater the same as it's hitting me today. And it's heavy handed and it lacks nuance for, for all of that. This was made in a time that was, there were a lot of heavy hands pushing in the other direction. So it wasn't really a time or a place for subtlety. You had to bust out the lead pipe and club people with your message. It did. And I respected it. It didn't apologize for shit, which I also respect because I don't apologize for shit. And I really like this movie. This one is complicated because of all this production meddling with the cuts. And it's like, how much can you blame the director for that or the editor, etc.? I feel like I'm so 50-50 because in terms of the objective of the film, it's like, well, the objective of which film, right? So in terms of the objective, I think this is one of the films where Ridley Scott is trying to make complex statements about religion and only some of them are landing well. Some of them land flat and don't work for me. I can appreciate what Liam's saying about the time period it was made in and sort of these pendulum swings, but I'm a person who generally does not appreciate pendulum swings. And so to me, the balance that is not there in the portrayal of both sides doesn't work for me. If we're all the same and all this killing is senseless, etc., then for me, it doesn't work to show one side as so much more moral. Like I would have liked to see that, like dude, both these religions are the cause and all this mayhem. And again, he kind of does it 50%, but he doesn't really go all the way with it for me. And that didn't work. And you see this theme kind of continue with Prometheus, Covenant, the Raised by Wolves series. Ridley Scott has a thing for trying to make big statements about religion. And like sometimes he pulls it off and sometimes he doesn't. In terms of the intent, I don't – for me, it doesn't work, and I don't see it as being successful. There's lots of things about this film that I really love, including, again, the production design, the battles. As far as I'm concerned, Orlando Bloom's like, fine. He doesn't ruin the film for me, but if you tell me change something about this film, I recast Orlando Bloom immediately. Who do you put in? Ewan McGregor? No. Guys, don't you – you don't get the joke? Oh. No. There's a joke? Phantom Menace, Liam Neeson. Oh, God is quite damn it. On. It's a Star Wars joke. <laughs> Credit to my husband for that one. Oh. I had the same reaction. I was like, I don't think you and McGregor would have done a good job. 
Yeah, I replaced him with Hayden Christensen. No, I'm just kidding. Oh, fuck you. Oh, God. I hope you're dead. I have, <laughs> I'm just kidding. I haven't put that much thought into it, but I would definitely recast Orlando Bloom because I think you could just do better. And I would make this film two and a half hours. I think three is too long, two is too short, and I would cut different things. But I think when we went over kind of how the characters are simplified through the the cutting, I think I would change some of those decisions. So I think I would edit it differently. Again, I'm not trying to say, obviously, that I can make a better film about this than Ridley Scott. No, that would be me. Right. But if I'm going to talk about my problems with it and whether it works for me, those are the things that don't work. So for me, because of all those complications, I think it's a little off its mark. Yeah, the burning bush is another scene that, again, is just like hammers you over the head, I thought. Happy it, just... it landed on the cutting room floor because that was not yeah. in the theatrical. Unnecessary. So I'll probably watch this again, but like not once a year. This is something I'll watch once a decade. And there are things about it that I love, but definitely not one of my favorite Ridley Scott films and not his best in my opinion, but it's a very valiant attempt. And I really like a lot of the stuff that's in it. So I'm kind of landing at a 50, 50 point. Just after the, uh, after the burning bush scene, when they try to kill Balian by the well, Mm-hmm. It looks like something out of Monty Python with the the Black Knight, where it's just like mm. the the three quarter shot of like the the knight, and it's just yeah. his head, and he just and goes he gets stabbed in the eye, well, and he just goes <laughs> and like the right. the helmet like just sort of yeah. Rocks not, a I wasn't bit. a huge fan of that scene either. That was hilarious. Like he looks over and he sees that his he sees that his sword is back by the horse, and then it cuts back to the knight who goes <laughs> and it, oh my god, it was hilarious. I love it. Also, the like chain mace type weapon is about mm. as accurate as an Iron Maiden. It is considered something that they don't even, I'm not sure if historians know where it comes from, but they know that it was really never actually used in battle. It would not be a useful weapon. Too unpredictable. So this film is obviously trying to do a lot and it takes a lot of time to do it, but I still don't think with what Ridley Scott is trying to do, it even has enough time because I think it is trying to make commentary on both what for then what's the current political situation of 9-11 and the anti-Muslim sentiment in America, our war on Afghanistan and Iraq and all of that whole kettle of fish. And then it's also, I think, trying to make commentary on the original crusades and the virtues of engaging in such behavior and who gets to decide what's a mandate from God. And for me, very obviously on the side of the Muslims, because these are people who are invading their their space, what has long historically been their space. It tries to tackle a lot of different complicated issues, especially when it comes to the the concept of who owns Jerusalem, which is still a thing that we are dealing with today and is a thing we will be dealing with probably forever because it lies at the center of these three Abrahamic traditions. And they don't even get into the Judaism, the Judaism part of this, although I will say at least King Baldwin IV mentions that both the Muslims and the Jews need to be kept safe. Hat tip to him for at least thinking about that, uh, because during the 12th century, the Jews were not well thought of by Europeans, to say the least. So I think Ridley Scott really tried to do too much 
with this movie. And I don't think that if you are going to make commentary on our current involvement in Iraq, that the Crusades is the best choice of topic, because that is such an entirely I mean, I can see the similarities, but it's also an entirely different campaign and the reasons behind it, the historical and cultural pushes for it to happen were so very different than what we were experiencing in that era that it feels very tenuous at best. And I didn't see this when it came out. And so watching it now, I had to remind myself like, Okay, so this was set in 2005, so it definitely had 9-11 implications, and those don't hold up because the relationship for those who didn't watch it when it came out is just not, not obvious. It's not obvious, and it feels like much more a commentary on the Crusades. And, like, I went to a Lutheran high school the first year, my first year in high school, and was taught an extensive amount about the Crusades, and I know... Ugh, far too much about them and far too much about the brutality on both sides of what that meant. I think in some aspects, Ridley Scott really gets it. He really gets how deeply ingrained the cultural differences were between these groups and that they had overlapping and directly opposite goals. And that there was also, which I think is really his overarching point if we are talking about the Crusades aspect of it, not the current political climate aspect of it, is that so much of it wasn't actually about God. So much of it had nothing to do with God. It was all about greed and political power and having possession of that holy site was what was important. It didn't matter what happened to the people of any side. It was just about the church having control because there was this big schism at the time between the Catholic and the Eastern Orthodox Church and so much was going on. And so I, I really commend Scott for trying to make a nuanced film about the Crusades because other than documentaries, there aren't any. Like, it's hard to find a documentary about the Crusades that is willing to take a side or is willing to stand in the middle Although I will say there is a really great documentary voiced by Eric Idle where he walks along the roads of the Crusades and tells the whole story of all three of them. That's just fascinating. That, that sounds I, awesome. Yeah, I watched it in my high school and I couldn't believe it. And as a huge Monty Python fan, I was like, awesome, Eric Idle, I like this. But like, it, it's great. If you can find it, definitely watch it. It'll give you a really great perspective on what life was like at the time and the actual path that the Crusades happened on and all of that. So having had that perspective, I really enjoyed it from that aspect. But when we're talking about a film aspect, it's so muddled. It's so muddled. And Scott doesn't quite know how to tell the different parts of his message. He doesn't know how to differentiate between the current commentary and the past commentary. The acting is, whether you're talking about the theatrical or the director's cut, is is very one note, especially when we're talking about Orlando Bloom's character. And I don't, I think Orlando Bloom is fine in this, honestly, because I think his direction in this is not to be a main character. It is to be a cipher for the audience. He is not given, other than like at the very end when he gives that speech to the men, like he's not given these great moments of introspection 
or he's not here to educate people. He is here to give the audience a venue into seeing the intricacies of what this situation was like, according to Ridley Scott's vision. So I think Scott kind of half and half succeeded. Like, it's interesting on a certain level. It's definitely gorgeous. So gorgeous. So well shot. Like, I love how practical it is. And I think if Ridley Scott was going to make something like this, he really knocked it out of the park. And when I mentioned Cecil B. DeMille earlier, that is very much how it feels. Because for those of you who aren't aware of Cecil B. DeMille, he was a director in the 50s who made all of these really, all of the biblical epics. And Well, he, he started earlier than the 50s, but. He, he did, but that's where his like. That's where he made like the Ten Commandments and the Bible exactly. and Greatest Show on Earth, which was not that, but. Not that great, but. Um, <laughs> when you think of those big epics, generally folks think of the Ten Commandments or Ben-Hur, he was kind of the godfather of like, all right, we are just going to pay out all the money and build these great sets and have thousands of extras and all these costumes. Like he was so invested in making these feel very realistic. And it feels like Scott really captures that. And not a lot of directors can do that these days. Like, Jackson does it with Lord of the Rings, but other than that, like, it's just not a thing that's done. And I think Scott really captures that essence of making it feel real as opposed to like, oh, these are all just not real people. This is all just CG nonsense. Even when there is CG on screen, it still feels real. So it still captured me and I was still invested in it about halfway between the director's cut and the theatrical cut. What didn't interest me in the theatrical cut did in the director's and vice versa. I don't know. I mean, I might watch this with my dad because my dad is like, (laughs) (laughs) me and my dad are into war movies and like, he's a barely less than a theologian with his, with his opinions and such. So I could see that being interesting to talk to him, to watch it with him and then talk to him about it. But there's nothing in this that really grabs me for like, I want to watch this. Like if I want to watch a big historical epic, I'm going to go back to the 10 commandments or something like that. Because by the way, just, just to clarify earlier, you mentioned 10 commandments and Ben, Hur. Yeah. You already, you know, that Ben, Hur was not Cecil B. DeMille. No, but it's in the same vein. Same vein. I just wanted to clarify and head off. The naysayers at the pass. Yes. They were like, that yes. wasn't made by, so, yeah. No, no. Not it was that our not listeners ben- are like that. Our listeners are pretty groovy. But Ben-Hur falls so very much into that same vein of what Cecil B. DeMille really started in Hollywood. Yes. With this, like, let's be as realistic as possible, even though it's 1950 and not whenever. And we're going to have people die in chariot races. Who cares? I don't want to. You don't want to interrupt my my breakdown yeah i don't want to interrupt your i mean i do i always lie you have (laughs) you have no mercy for me or anyone else i have no mercy (laughs) no quarter will be given but before we're done i i do have to say my least favorite part of the director's cut so go ahead finish your finish your breakdown but i want to come back to me wait what (laughs) no say your thing now we're not coming back to you again you're fucking done Claim the spotlight now or forever hold your peace. Okay, then I'm, cl- then I'm taking it now. The Guy de Lusignan, the Guy de Lusignans, coming back at the end with a sword fight. Oh, that was dumb. That was yeah. not only dumb, 
But so like the before the battle, he knights everybody. And it's awesome. It's like a good moment. It calls back the thing. He slaps the kid in the face. Kid bleeds a little bit. It's good. Really good. I mean, a little. I don't know if Orlando Bloom pulls it off, but God damn it. He's close. And I love that moment in the movie. In the theatrical cut. Because in the director's cut, like he ends it up with a rise of night, rise of night. And they have like that moment. And it's great. Then in the director's cut, he says it like five more fucking times. And I'm like, dude, you're really beating this rise of night thing into the ground. Absolutely. Like horse. you ruined it. You should have just left it, but you ruined it. It's kind of, kind of like this episode. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> okay. So to finish my point, folks, there you go. What I'm saying is, I didn't really like it. This is one of the few movies I'm willing to come out and say that, like, it's fine, but it's just not. It misses too many points for me. And there's a couple of Ridley Scott movies that I won't go into now that really fucking miss, woo, miss the point. <laughs> and none of them are the great ones. None of them are the ones we would talk about on this podcast. Except this one. I think in this one, it's much more a it doesn't work for me and I don't like it. Because he really tries to make it too many things at once. He tries to be both a current political commentary and a past political commentary. It's too much. And it doesn't end up feeling like a cohesive story and narrative. So I, I'm glad I watched it. Don't get me wrong. If you haven't seen it, watch it and watch the director's cut to save yourself time. But I don't think I'll watch it again, like I said, unless it's my dad. But I just... I expect so much out of Ridley Scott, and this time he just barely, just barely misses the mark for me. Still better than Gladiator. <laughs> you gotta get it in, don't you? What are we doing next time, guys? Well, the next one was a uh, was a uh, one that I I recommended because we were looking for something a little bit different. Uh, it's from the uh, what is oftentimes anymore spoken of as like trying to unseat 1939 as the greatest year for cinema. Uh, it's from 1999. It is a movie called Beau Travail. It is a modern day adaptation. Well, for 1999 modern day adaptation of the Herman Melville novel, Billy Budd. Uh, but it deals with the French foreign legion in Africa. I have not seen this, uh, but it, it struck me as one that would be, interesting to talk about it is kind of one of the the icons of gay cinema in the night in the late 90s um so it's going to be a lot of i gotta tell you i don't know what to expect it's going to be all over the place i'm pretty sure we're gonna have some good conversations and it's done by south african slash french director claire denis yes. who is one of the most well-known female directors ever honestly i think the was it it was the cinematographer, also a woman on that, who's who's pretty famous, I believe. I believe so, yes. Right, and we were and we were kind of looking to fill a director's slot with a woman, and for a war film, that's pretty damn rare. Yeah, unless you're like it's Catherine Bigelow and crickets, crickets, crickets. Agnes Godard is the uh, is the cinematographer. Okay. So yes, thank you. Both directed and cinematographed. Filmed, <laughs> cinematographed. Cinematographed. <laughs> by two women so coining it trademark it i watched this last night and i'm gonna watch it again before we record and i will make a prediction 
I don't think we are going to have any listeners who come out and say, yeah, it was all right. I think we are going to have listeners who love it for its difference and what it's trying to do. And we are going to have listeners who are going to hate this and are going to wonder why we picked it at all. That's my prediction. Well, just know that when we picked it, none of us had seen it. This is true. Yep. We were taking a chance for you, audience. We're trying something new. It is a nice, tight 92 minutes, so there is that Ooh. to be said. You're, we're not asking Ooh. you to commit to another five to nine hour ordeal. So Yeah, it's um, not a, we're, we're not having to, uh, to watch four different versions of it to get no, the full sense. One. Claire Denis doesn't do director's cuts. She does one. Oh, good. God bless that oh, woman. Oh, like a good filmmaker. Yeah, I can appreciate that. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We really appreciate your support, and we are excited to see you on the next one. We love you guys. Bye, Thank guys. you for listening. Thank you.